A man become preeminent, he is expected to have enthusiasms. 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 What am I? What draws my admiration? What is that which gives me joy? Baseball. Alrighty, folks, welcome to the Pull Hitter Podcast, your destination for actionable resources and tools to grind out your wins to fantasy baseball success this year. I'm Rob DiPietro, the Dead Pull Hitter. Catch me on Twitter at Dead Pull Hitter. You can also catch me hosting the Launch Angle Podcast as well. We had our first episode last Thursday, and we'll have our second one tomorrow, co-hosting with Rob Silver and Jeff Zimmerman. Today's episode, my special guest is Mr. Lance Brozdowski. You can catch him on Twitter and YouTube really getting into the nitty-gritty about baseball and how to describe all the nuances of these fantastic metrics that are out. Lance, thank you for joining me, buddy. What's going on today? How's it going? Thanks for having me, man. This is cool. I don't, I don't do a ton of fantasy podcasts, so it's cool to get asked on one of these. I think my perspective is maybe not as sharp as some of the people you've had on here, but I hope I can at least bring some perspective that's different, and I think there's value in that. So let's get going. I'm excited for this. 100%. I think there's a lot of value in understanding what – is out there publicly to you know find metric wise model wise and how to apply it and all the videos and posts that i've seen you write and and do is just it helps me not understand it to understanding it like i think you do one of the best jobs if not the best my opinion of like taking stuff that i don't know what it means and then explaining it but then like bridging the gap to why mm. it's you know like why it's applicable and yeah. you know in baseball and then then i'll find a way to use it in fantasy too so yeah that's I, that's my goal for sure is to like try to reduce things down to somebody about digestible form especially because i do stuff on television so you have a short amount of time there to bring in a topic that you're really passionate about that's complex and that is a huge I think that's that's the MO of like what I try to do. That's what it is. And like people can take that information and do whatever they want with it. But my goal is just try to make it a little bit more digestible um, and explain some of the nuance. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, but I, I really enjoy trying to do it. And it allows me to have a really uh, a lot of very interesting conversations with smart people in baseball um, on major league coaches to, to minor league people and coordinators and development stuff. So I, it helps me really understand, I think, some of the development paths guys take and Given my title at Marquee Player Development Analyst, that's that's pretty fitting for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So tell tell the listeners, you know, um, I guess to not about where you are right now, but how you got to what you're doing right now. Before yeah. that, I'll just tell everyone you can find Lance on Twitter at Lance Braz, B-R-O-Z. And then he's got his links to his YouTube page where he has several awesome videos that you could watch. But go ahead, explain to everyone what you're doing right now. Yeah, my, my background's a little weird. I was actually an accounting major and I worked in public accounting for three or four years in the city of Boston. Um, so I'm an East Coaster at heart. Um, that's how I know Jeff Ponce. We used to work at Roswell together. Um, who you've had on, he's great. He's one of just one of the smartest minds. I think him and I meshed really well in the past and stuff. And I wish we worked together more. We we we've kind of separated in terms of him going to baseball American stuff. But 
Then I went to Northwestern University for a grad program in sports media. Uh, realized there that I really wanted to push into baseball specifically and try to create some some bit of value for myself and thinking I had an edge over other people and explaining some of these complex topics. And then I kind of stumbled into TV stuff uh, back in 2021. I was doing some minor league stuff. I grew up on minor league beats just because the access there was great. And I really enjoyed kind of the prospecting side of things. That's how I knew Jeff. Um, and from there, I kind of took off. Like I did some minor league stuff. I got pushed on TV. And then I had some producers here at Marquee, which is the Chicago Cubs Regional Sports Network, um, push me into doing more, like proposing a segment. And then that segment became basically entire of my last year was working with some of the talent we have in. So former players like Ryan Dempster, Carlos Pena, Cliff Floyd, et cetera, guys that come in here, um, picking their brands, coming up with things to talk through with them, bringing in some of the more analytically minded ideas and approaches in front offices that are being trickled down to the field level and having them react to it. So that's kind of my MO. I, I finished last year doing some sideline for market, which was really cool. Something I'd never done. Um, that was definitely like a very grateful moment to be able to try to bring in some analytics slant to the game by play by play stuff, which is very easy to do with guys like Boog and JD on the broadcast. But this year I'm will be so fun. happy to I, see I'm, that, man. I'm sorry to, yeah. but I was so happy to see it that. I remember cool. when you tweeted, I was like, Oh my God, this is awesome. I know. I was really man, excited. You look so was, happy too, man. You could yeah. just see it genuinely in your face and how you were speaking that like, but, but you shined like immediately. I appreciate so. that. Yeah, it was man. hard. It was really hard. It's a different environment. <laughs> I, I hope to do a little more of that this year. Um, I don't know if it'll be as consistent or when it'll be, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. It kind of felt like I was on a podcast. Honestly, when you're doing a stand-up hit and you're on video, it's very different. You kind of tense up a little bit. The, the segments where I just came in as my voice, you know, sometimes they do the sideline like, hey, you know, this guy comes out of the game. Why do you come out of the game? Let's kick it down to whoever's on the sideline or Steve Gelbs if it's SNY or whatever. And it's like Steve's like, yeah, he's, he's out with this injury. But that stuff was cool because that felt like a podcast to me. So, like, guy comes in, nasty changeup. I can pull up the data. I'm, I have my laptop there during on the field during the game. And, like, I could go, you know, talk to my producer and be like, yeah, hey, I have a nugget on, like, why this changeup's good. And then I come in and it's like, explain it. It's like. So it was really oh, cool. Great. I really enjoyed that yeah. dynamic. It was it was really fun. Um, but yeah, very grateful to have that opportunity. Kind of came up last minute, and uh, I thought it was great. That is awesome, man. And so, like, have you had discussions with former MLB players? Like, how does that work? Like, how did that go in your brain? Because that sounds pretty intimidating to me. So, like, what what's the like what's the base of the conversation? And 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 like, if it's anyone who pushes back on a lot of the things that you like, how do you deal with that? I guess. You kind of just have to deal with it. Is the reality of it. like <laughs> know your role? The, I'm, I'm in the exactly. No, that's it. You're yeah. in the role. Like most of the time, someone's pushing back on what I think or do. Like I'm okay with that. I think I've changed my mindset. Initially, when I got into this injury, I th I, industry, excuse me, I thought I would be the one trying to change people's minds. But I think what I've realized more is more valuable is just to present another side of an argument. Like I just, I'm just going to give you what the other side is thinking. I think there's a lot of value in just considering another perspective. And like whether you think that that perspective is correct or whether you think I'm insane does not matter to me. Whereas I think a couple of years ago, it very much did. I was very like, how do you not see this thing that I see? You know, <laughs> now it's just like, listen, like you have that perspective and like, I'm fine with that. There's nothing wrong with having a different perspective. I think there's a ton of value in, in converse perspective. So my perspective now is just to present another side of the argument. So if someone comes in and says, you know, guys swing down on the ball. Like I love this, how he's swinging down on the ball. It's like, cool you might think that like let's the other perspective here is that he's swinging down until he swings up which every hitter in baseball does and it's like let's look at some video and like think about that and then you'll start to see like oh okay you're not literally saying he's swinging down on the ball like what you're saying is that the cue mentally for him i think this is what you run into with hitters a lot of the time is like the cue mentally for that hitter is that he has to swing down on the ball but then what he's actually doing is different this is like that feel versus real thing that you run into a ton 
in pitch design. I did some stuff for driveline baseball on the side a couple of years ago. as like a video editor for them. And I, I got pretty good exposure to like how pitch design sessions work, you know, syncing up track made rap soda to Edutronic, which is all kind of the, the stats software in that super slow-mo video you'll see. And like, there's a huge contrast between feel and real. Like you ask a guy, what is happening to your hand on this slide or you're throwing and the guy will tell you, and then you'll look at it and it's completely different. I think that's what you run into a lot of the time when you talk to former players. And it's a matter of reconciling those two perspectives that I think is really valuable. And I, I really enjoy doing it because most of the time, again, I've changed my mindset to the point now where it's like, okay, I get you say, or get you're saying that, but like, let's, let's kind of clarify how it's approached, like how you're saying it. Like you're not saying he's actually swinging down on the ball. You're saying the cue mentally for that guy at the plate is to swing down on the ball. That works for him. You know, this is what you hear hitters say all the time. Like, like that mental cue is more important than I think what is literally happening. It's just being able to parse it out, you know? So there's value in someone coming in and saying, I'm swinging down on the ball. And then there's also value in me saying like, that's the mental cue he's thinking, but it's funny guys say that. And then every single time you see a path, it's usually up on the ball. No yeah. one's ever making contact on the downswing, you know? So it, it's, it's like, yeah, that, that is just, I think important to bring up. And again, my idea as the role I'm in is just to present that. I just want to present the other side of the argument. You know, I don't want to tell you you're wrong. I think that that's something I've tried to, that's going to be the goal, I think, for this year is to not just tell people they're wrong or something like that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, like the other thing too, scouting, like late movement on a pitch. A while ago, everyone thought late movement didn't exist. Data people would say it didn't exist. So say early 2000s. Scouts would be like, there's late movement on that pitch. Then you come three, four years ago and you start to get the idea of seam effects, seam shifted wake, as it's called. Like we do think a lot of that movement occurs late in ball flight. So late movement is a thing. So I, the, the idea that the like, new school kind of validates the old school, I think is very much there. And that's a lot of my perspective to be a little bit more open in terms of how I ingest kind of old school concepts or concepts players that are older and maybe don't appreciate a lot of the analytics think and come in and thinking. So there's right. a lot of that contrast. Most of the time, the old school perspectives that have stuck around are pretty accurate. Um, and scouts but yeah, in that respect exactly. are really accurate, right? It's accurate. And now you can put actual numbers on it, metrics exactly. to it, like in that match it and say, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because I think you're right too. Um a lot of what I've seen from Twitter too, like hitting instructors and um, even like Ted Williams, I, I saw clips of him back in the day. Like he, they were always asking that question. Well, is that really what you're doing? Is that really what's happening? Like you're saying, like it not, is he really swinging down at the ball? Like all the things yeah. you're telling people is that what's really going through, but with the video now and actual numbers, you can quantify those things, which I think is the biggest hurdle that people have to get you know, have to get over. Like once they're just saying, oh, this is nothing groundbreaking. It's just really confirming our thoughts for these previous years. And I think that perfect yeah, yeah. marriage of watching and scouting and and numbers had like a perfect medium. And it could just, if you know how to use them both well, then, you know, you're on the right path for sure. Spot on. So I want to talk about some like major league trends that we're seeing. Uh, we have guys going to bat labs um, to make bats and players going to drive lines, and you know, obviously converting it to like how they're going to do in fantasy is 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 tough mm. because I think the flip side is like we might you know, not hear of a lot of people who are going, you know, but it's just some that are publicly highlighted. So we can't say, oh, you know, uptick for Randall Gritchuk and uptick for Austin Riley, all these guys that, that we're seeing the articles on. But um, I guess like, how should we handle those news? And like, how can we maybe try to use it? Because I think my whole thing is like, well, it doesn't hurt that they're going right, you know, and, and trying to get better. But is there a way that we can maybe apply it to, you know, the news that we're hearing to maybe how they might do in fantasy that year? Yeah. Totally. I'll start by saying like my fantasy experiences. I played for a while. I play more home league and satellites on NFBC. That's generally my allotment 
Um, I don't play much large field stuff. So I don't play the DCs or any of the kind of larger pool where they take a small percentage of your, your cash input and put it towards a bigger pool. Just because I, I honestly realize that I don't think my skill is that great on the fantasy side to be able to win those leagues. So in my perspective, I'd rather pay satellites where I know I could finish maybe in the top four consistently and have a better chance at some kind of payout. So I, my perspective, you know, a lot of the time, I use a lot of the Razzball tools. I love their war room. I use that for every draft. that helps me understand how I'm building a team in terms of what categories I'm deficient in. That's my main tool. I love that. Um, and then I bring in a lot of my own perspective. I bring in a lot of my own analysis and the nuance that I know. A lot of the conversations that I have with coaches sometimes do lead me on the fantasy side. Generally, it's a lot of stuff I don't publicize, but it helps me inform decisions and stuff. But yeah, I think I think a lot of the time too, like in-season management, I, you know, I've listened to some other podcasts and some of the smarter people, the bigger NFBC players that have really good track records. In-season management's huge, right? We were talking a little bit before this pod started about like Aaron Judge's win rate. Like how many teams or what was the percent of teams winning with Aaron Judge? And it was only around, I think, 60%. I could be wrong on that number, but I think it was around there. That's crazy to me, right? Like he had such a good season, overperformed his metrics so much that like my perspective on the draft most of the time is like just kind of don't mess it up, you know? Like try to avoid some bigger injury, try to avoid the blow up players. Um, whereas like the DeGroms of the world and stuff in those big DCs, like you want to try to capture that 90 percentile outcome that gives you such a massive advantage over say the high floor for a pitcher of like a Lance Lynn or something like that, completely different pitchers. But that's mm -hmm. my perspective just on the fantasy side before I get into fantasy talk. So I don't say, I, I'm not saying I'm the best fantasy player ever. I love giving individual player takes though. And, and people could do with what they want there in terms of some of the trends we're talking about here. Yeah. Bat fitting is what it's called. And this is a, it's a really interesting one to me. I think a lot of the trends, how I look at it is like, you understand projections really well. And I imagine everyone listening to this probably understands projections, right? You're looking at kind of the 50th percentile outcome of a player, right? They have a distribution in, you know, this is the most likely, we think this is the most li likely outcome for that given player. In that, it's implied that there's a range of outcomes, right? Like you could get up to the, I know Enos Harris does a lot of stuff where he looks at 80 percentile, 20th percentile, and finds a differential between those. Like we're looking at how flat the curve is versus how steep it is. Steeper guys, you know, high floor, not too much upside. We, You know what you're getting, but they're not going to way overperform. Whereas this, the larger range guys, like the Byron Buxton's of the world, generally due to injuries, it's easy to pull guys those guys out. You know, those guys have larger ranges. When I see something like a guy going to a bat lab or going to driveline, how I look at it, and I've thought about this a little bit, how I look at it is that I just think what it does is it slightly shifts my perspective to think that something beyond that 50th percentile is more likely to occur. Does that make me in a draft take that guy 20 spots or two rounds above ADP? No. What it makes me do is just more confident in selecting the guy at a given ADP. Right. That makes sense. If In looking at that market, I just get more confident in the price tag on the player. You know, that's, I think, the key thing for me in thinking that perspective is just looking at the 50th percentile and going, okay, like the examples being like a new bar, like a new bar is a hot player. I think to some extent what's hot about him is the fact that he's been pretty public about training at driveline and training bat speed. And we've seen year over year improvements there, you know. And what's maybe thrown under the radar a little more is a guy like Mookie Betts going there for the offseason or, or parts of the offseason in a likely training bat speed in the same capacity. You know, he's a guy that pulls a lot of his fly balls. If he adds a little bit of bat speed on those pull fly balls, then he's going to end up with more home runs. And I like that from a perspective, just making me more confident in drafting a guy like Mookie Betts. It goes for pitchers, too. It goes for a lot of players. There's a really good article written by Ken Rosenthal on The Athletic about Austin Riley going to uh, Baseball Performance Lab, which is the Marucci Lab down in, I believe it's Louisiana, where – they basically bat feed you. They run you through like a motion capture session. 
they really think about your swing and bat fitting is essentially the way I understand the idea is just every bat has a balance point. And what you're doing is you're adjusting that balance point to understand how it affects the player's mechanics, mechanically, how he swings, how his bat speed is. And there's a little nuance that kind of parallels club fitting in golf where it's like, you know, maybe some kinds of bats with different balance points are more effective for certain kinds of pitches. And Rosenthal gets into this with the article in regards to Austin Riley, where he has a slightly now, it seems like at least from what the reporting is that he's going to use a slightly different bat on a guy who throws sinkers. The the way it's going to be slightly closer to his hands allows him to turn a little bit harder on the inside, um, maintain bat speed on inner third when his hands are a little closer to him. That's that's essentially all it is. So from my perspective, it's not like I'm pushing Austin Riley up around. I just like Austin Riley at that price more because I understand he's making some adjustment that I don't think the market is going to account for. You know, that's, I think, how I look at a lot of these larger trends. And it's actionable evidence. Like, I think anyone saying that it's not is, again, like, it's a matter of how much action you're putting on the individual instance of a change or, you know, this is something I made a video a while ago about Dylan Cease. This is a great example. Prior to Dylan Cease's breakout, he went to, I don't remember the facility, it was somewhere in Georgia, and he trained and fixed his fastball shape. And they had, you know, some data on Twitter as to what that fastball shape was new. And it was objectively better than his prior fastball. It got more carry. It was just a better pitch. And that is something that, okay, I'm not 100% confident that pitch design intensity is going to match game intensity. That's something you'll run into a lot is there's a differential there between a guy working on his particular pitch and then bringing it in game and having that shape change when adrenaline and pressure and all these other things come into play. But with Dylan Cease, it was such a big change. I was like, this is just an easy one. Like, I, it was an easy breakout. The video I had was just Dylan Cease is about to break out. It was, it was so simple to me. It was just like he had a crap fastball and now the fastball is better. Like, I'm just, I'm happy to take him at that ADP and I hammered him and I got him in a lot of leagues and he broke out. It, that, yeah. a change like that, to the point, we're getting to the point now where I think a lot of guys have optimized repertoire. So it's harder to see those changes occurring. And I almost think that it's more almost team based now where it's like when guys go to certain teams, and we've seen this with the Dodgers, like when you guys go to certain teams, it, it, that makes me a little more confident. You know, you go to a smarter team or sharper team in a certain perspective, then I might just be more confident taking that player at ADP. So that's how I think I view a lot of the trends in baseball impacting individual players. I like that. I, I I think that's exactly right. It just feels like a little more confident that you're getting a guy who's really looking to improve himself. I, I, again, like we don't know the other guys who are doing this too, so we yeah. can't mark up everyone. But the fact that we do know about Riley and Mookie Betts and, and Betts is interesting too, because if you look at his pull fly ball rate, it's gone up every single year the last four years. So yeah. it went from 22% to 25 to 30 to last year was 33 and a half. So you know, like he's making a, more of an effort to pull it. And if he can find like any type of um, Nolan Arenado type of, you know, adding yeah, that, another good one. Yeah. right. You know, and, and like that's, that's huge because then all of a sudden, like his, his maybe, his home run output that maybe people don't believe can be consistently in the thirties now can be like a more consistent thing. Like we like, exactly. Oh, I believe it now. So I think that totally makes sense. And the bat, the bat stuff, I just love it too. I'm just, I'm just so fascinated how it took baseball so long to do it. Right. To like yeah. <laughs> actually, cause like you said, golfer has been using this for several years, like a long, a long time. And um, it's just, it's just wild that no one had thought about this. Um, a long time ago because that's your one tool to do well is the thing you're holding in your yeah. hands is your one tool that gives you your livelihood and it just took this long to perfect how it feels in your hand and I think in the article too I was really it kind of blew my mind to like even using uh, like like a heavier bat to even like pull the ball easier because 
it's just where that tipping point is. If it's if the yeah. weight is more toward your hand or more toward the, a barrel, it changes so much of what you can do with the bat and with what pitch you're facing. It's just so awesome. They see that stuff. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I read those articles and I'm like, Oh man, I was just, that's just great. Just great. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually talked to Liam Mucklow who was mentioned in that article like three years ago, prior to COVID prior to like 2019, I think I talked to him because I, I don't remember how it stumbled on it, but someone told me that it was like going to be a thing. And I was like, this is cool. I talked to him and I like, wish I did content off it. I, I kind of kept it under the wraps. Cause I just like, I wasn't, it made so much sense to me, you know, but like I didn't, there was no good player examples. You know, I didn't really have too much info on it. So I, I wish I jumped on it quicker. I think another good video is that Julio Rodriguez has a YouTube channel and he talks, he goes there and videos it. And that's another good one. Just if you're more of a visual person to kind of understand what they're doing. But yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me how it hasn't picked up more. The funniest thing, the one the thing I'll leave with before we move this off this topic is like, the one thing I have talked to players about and other coaches and stuff in terms of bat fitting is that uh, a lot of players will be fitted with a bat and just not like the bat and not use the bat. And even though that's a more optimal bat for them and, you know, the baseball performance side would think that this guy will have better production with it. And they're not, you know, it's not 100% confidence on some of these things, but guys just don't like the feel sometimes. And that is a huge thing, especially for hitters. It's like feel, your feel as a hitter. You hear hitters all the time talk about like, my, my pregame work is just getting my feel. That's all I'm trying to do. And if you're using a different bat than you've been using for the last two years and say you're, you're 120 WRC plus guy, like I can understand how that guy would not want to take the risk of being 115 WRC plus, but an upside of 130, you know, like that it's, it's, it's something that I've realized. I think initially when I heard the bat fitting thing, I was just like, it's crazy. How every guy isn't using this to me. But then the more you think about it, it's like, like a lot of these guys are feel based and a lot of these guys are not going to be convinced that like a bat, you know, is better than what has gotten them to be an all-star level player for three years in a row. So and Something I think I definitely like, considered more in that article too. They had like talking about the feel part of it. They yeah, would give, yeah, they mentioned that they have the guys close their eyes and they give them different size and different weight bats and they make them guess if it's heavier or you know or yep. and and it's funny because they said that for, um, Francisco uh, Andorra yeah, yeah um, XM make a bat for his right side bat that's like point yeah. one millimeters smaller or larger i forget the you know which way went up and they were like you'll never know the difference and they actually gave him a test and he he said like 15 out of 15 times he guessed which one it was which is really fascinating you could talk about feel like exactly what you're saying like how it feels in their back and in their hand so um i love all this stuff it just uh i feel like it gets us it just gives us uh, more to enjoy about baseball i think and just agree it's fascinating um talk to me a little bit about pitch type the trend that we're seeing in the mlb you know like which which pitches are we seeing more and less of and how do you think it can like maybe go towards in the future what we might see going yeah, forward no, it's a great question I, I think the obvious one that you've heard of the last year is just the sweeper the sweeping slider um and i think we've actually had a little bit of pullback on this this recent off season i would say for the most part where and this is just natural it's just natural trends right like a, a trend goes in one direction and then there's just people who advocate in the other direction for it. So I, the sweeper is just a pitch that gets a lot of lateral horizontal movement, right? It's generally something you're seeing more in relievers, I would say, than a lot of starting pitchers. But there are some really effective starting pitchers that use it. Um, guys like Drew Rasmussen come to mind who goes from Milwaukee to Tampa Bay, adds the pitch. It's kind of mixes up some of their parts of the repertoire, throws a bit of a cutter, changes up his cutter a little bit. And then next thing you know, he's a really good pitcher. Kind of more weak contact inducing, not like an ace caliber guy, but a, a really valuable fantasy starter in Drew. Um, a variety of guys like Shoyotani is a good one. Like he's got so much variance on his slider. 
um, that it's kind of hard to pinpoint it or give it an average movement, I would say. You kind of have to look more at the plot and the range of outcomes of that pitch, and he has he has one of the best sweepers in baseball. And I, I, there's different ways to categorize it. Generally, the average one is more like an 82 to 84, would say, let's say like 10-plus horizontal movements, so 10, 10 inches of like glove side movement. So what you'll see is that a lot of guys are pulling out like super sweepers, like really good pitches, like the Clay Holmes style one, which is like 14-15. It's about 50% more horizontal movement, and it's harder. And that is, I think, the key is, like, you see the Otani's throwing his around, like, 88 to 90 sometimes at, like, 11 inches of horizontal. Like, that's an outlier pitch. It's, like, 8 miles per hour above the average sweeper, which you normally try to get to a sweeper. Um, and the reason I think this is important is because teams are optimizing on stuff models, right? Um, a couple of these are public. Some of these people eventually just get scooped up by teams such that you kind of never see him again. Cameron Grove is a guy who just got scooped up recently. He was putting out stuff model that was good. Eno Saris is, has one who subscribed to the Athletic. You have access to. I, I like using his. I think he's just very accurate, trains it smartly. He's also just probably one of my favorite baseball analysts out there. Um, so I, that that is, I think teams can objectively look at stuff. We we have a pretty good historic track record of what makes a good pitch and what makes specifically a good breaking ball in the slider case. And therefore, we can train for it. It's relatively easy to get towards a certain grip. There's a specific grip that teams are using to get some of this. It makes it easier for guys to pick up that lateral movement. It's the two-seam slider grip. Generally, the cue guys use, what the pitcher is thinking when he throws is just throw a curveball. And what happens is the this how the air moves around the ball, seam shifted weight, seam effects, moves the ball a little bit more laterally and also lifts it up. So it allows a guy to cue curveball out of hand but then end up with a lateral pitch. That's, I think, the key thing on the sweeper. There's other ways to define it. Some people just bucket anything into a sweeper that's over 10 horizontal. But I think there's a little more nuance in talking to coaches about how guys get to it. Not all of that sweeper shape is created equal. There's guys who command it better. The zone rate on it on sliders generally is only like 44%. But like there's some guys, if you could get that pitch up to 50% in the zone, it's such a good pitch that you have such a high margin for error with it. You could rip that thing a bunch of times. I think Otani's zone rate on it is probably relatively good. Um, but Hayden Wisniewski from the Cubs is another one who's got a really good zone rate on a sweeper. Uh, that makes the pitch more effective. The pullback has been from the perspective of everyone chasing a sweeper. And you, I've talked to coaches about this too. There's guys in organizations who I had a couple, one coach say to me uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was like, yeah, this player's got caught up trying to chase a sweeper. Like it, it, this is where I think valuable coaching comes into play where teams that are kind of ahead of the curve are starting to push not in the opposite direction per se. I think they acknowledge that the sweeper is still probably one of the most valuable breaking balls in baseball from a purely from a whiffs perspective with one of the most strongly whiff inducing pitches. But you have to also think about it in the player's repertoire. A lot of guys are working with two sliders now. So Clay Holmes is one where if you look at his plot, he actually throws two different kinds of sliders. He's not throwing one slider. He's throwing a more lateral sweeper, but he's also throwing a pitch that's more what you'd call like a gyro slider, or kind of bridges between a cutter or doesn't really have much of that sweep or induced movement. It kind of just falls. Um, but he's throwing two sliders within his one slider. Um, and that others, the older slider, when he went to the Yankees, he added the sweeper, but the, the pitch that's more of that gyro cuttery slider, that was a pitch he had with the pirates. So again, this gets in the whole larger point of pitch classification, not having the best, you know, ability to pull out some of these nuanced pitch shapes and differentials between hand and this guy sometimes do that. Zach Wheeler's one with his slider where his slider to lefties is more like a cutter. And then it turns into more like a slider versus righties. But Again, if you're just looking at his slider shake, you're getting an average movement for each handedness. So splitting it out on handedness is really important. So in terms of trends, mm. I, I don't really know where we're going with the sweeper. I don't think it's going to go away. Maybe there's some pullback. My argument on pushing, like there's a lot of people who've said that the guys just need to throw more gyro sliders. It's just an easier pitch to command, which I think there's some merit to. But I also think what you run into there is that 
to have an effective gyro slider, like you have to have good command and you have to have a good fastball shape. And those two things are, are kind of connected to some extent. The guys who have good fastball shape, creating a lot of carry, generally getting behind the ball a little bit better. And because of that, they're not able to get around sliders as effectively. So we'll get into a pitcher later, but there's a young pitcher coming up that I find really interesting, Andrew Painter, who has a lot of carry on his fastball, but then also is throwing a sweeping slider, which is kind of a rarity. You don't really see that. This is why you see a guy like Drew Asmussen with a nasty sweeper throwing a cutter. It's why you see Corbin Burns with the nasty sweeper throwing a primary cutter because he gets around the ball so well. You call it supination. Um, mm-hmm. He gets around the ball so well that he's not able to get behind the ball enough to create that carry. So uh, there's a lot of kind of the nuance of that that I think like if you're starting with fastball shape and you want a good fastball shape and you you value that as an organization, you're not going to run into a lot of sweeping sliders because guys are getting behind the ball too well. Those pitches generally don't work together. You don't look see a lot of really good combinations of pitch pairs of high-rise vertical fastballs and sweeping sliders. What you'll see is the sinker slider, the east-west approach, or more of a cutter slider, which the Cubs do a lot. Um, so I, I'm curious – to see where it goes if you want to just leave like a point of what is the pitch we'll see more of over the next however many years i think it's the splitter um and this is an obvious one a lot of people have said this isn't really novel information the novel piece i have there that's really interesting to me that i I want to talk to more coaches about it was something that was brought up to me recently is like splitters are generally correlated with injuries right like you hear that anecdotally a lot like okay throw more splitters create more injuries but the thing you'll hear a lot of coaches say is show me the data, show me the research. And there is really no research on this. I think the research that's actually been done has been done overseas in uh, in Japan. And they found no differential between, you know, guys throwing splitters and guys throwing non-splitters, let's say, for the most part. But the key thing there is that those pitchers over there are raised on splitters. So the nuance for Major League Baseball, I think, becomes how do you take a pitcher who maybe hasn't thrown a splitter and properly load that splitter on him such that he's not creating extra elbow stress. And the way to think about this is like, you know, say you go to the gym and you squat, right? And then you don't squat for a year, and then you go back into the gym and you squat hard. It's like your injury risk is going to go up. You're going to feel like crap the next day. You know, it's the same thing, I think, with the splitter. And again, I don't have a lot of thought into this yet, but it seems to me like the more I've talked to coaches that teams want to use splitters more effectively because you're seeing guys like Shane McClanahan uh, who actually throws a splitter, even though he calls it a changeup, which is a more, again, pitch classification nuance there. But Shohei Otani is a great one. Like, that ability to kind of preset that pronation and create some kind of depth pitch, especially for lefties, and use it right-right too, which is something that's kind of taboo but is also really effective, I think is something that we're going to see more of. But the key to it, I think, is how organizations approach giving pitchers splitters who haven't thrown splitters. That is the key. Mm. As to how it's done, I have no idea. I don't I don't have enough of a background in in – you know, loading pitches and in, in, on a pitcher on a guy's arm and workout and programming, I guess you could call it generally, is losing that word. But so that's kind of where I see the league going as, as to how many teams actually successfully load splitters on guys without creating injuries is a whole nother question. But I don't think there's, there's no, from what I understand, evidence that splitters create more Tommy Johns. The question there is like, how do you take a guy who hasn't thrown one and give him it? and not right. get him injured and what's the progression of that like he can't just learn it in an offseason and all of a sudden throw it 30 percent of the time in game you know maybe that creates more of an injury risk than if you like train it one offseason throw it five percent of the time and then next season you bring it up to 10 for the next year you bring it up to 20 but again maybe that's more of like a utopian idealistic way to think about it but i ramble it there a little bit in terms of pitch types and stuff no that's okay because uh, I, I it's a pretty I good took, dump of i took a, yeah i took a bunch of notes too because i i want to ask you more questions on top of that but yeah, we'll yeah. start with the splitter I, I guess 
I'm wondering where where is the idea that the injury come from? Is it just in the elbow? Is that is that the biggest? Yeah, I think that's it. It's maybe shoulder based too, but I, I hmm. think it's just a product of like again, it's one of these anecdotal things we've heard a lot of old school coaches say. And maybe there is some merit to it, but the newer school coaches I've talked to think that it's maybe there's not merit to it, but there's merit to or maybe there's merit to it, but you could correct that merit. You know, you could kind of think of another way such that you could invalidate this old school idea. The mm -hmm. old school idea is just like don't throw splitters, they create injuries. But you have a lot of kids in Japan throwing splitters at really young ages who don't end up with higher injury rates than guys in the States. So I, I at the end of the day, the, the biggest thing I think about on the injury side of baseball is just throwing a baseball down a mound creates injuries you know right. as to yeah. whether you want to granularly look at all these little factors and and really focus in on them and say they create they cause injuries the cause of injuries for pitchers most of the time is throwing down a slope right yeah like that's that's really it <laughs> yeah if you, if you don't want to get injured don't throw a baseball so like if you're thinking <laughs> it from a coach perspective like you have to optimize the guy on the mound now is there mechanical things that lead to injuries and stuff i don't really have enough information or knowledge in that space to know but Again, like I, I think that we often get really focused on granular things like, oh, throwing a splitter creates more injuries. It's like, I think just throwing a baseball causes injuries. You right, know? right. Like, that's really yeah, good. No, 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 it really makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to bring up something you brought up about checking out the plots of like two different sure. sliders. Like what, what would be the best way to do that? Mm -hmm. I guess if it is it on like the um, the player's page or like how do you yeah. differentiate if, if someone is, is throwing two separate sliders? Yeah, it's a tough one because it's, it's not a tough really, one, right? It, there isn't really a good plot available. Um, the way I, I probably would approach it is to go into the Savant game feed. And I think there's a pitch plot in there, but this gets maybe really specific into the difference between like long form and short form movement, which are two different ways to measure the movement of a pitch. Savant phrases everything in long form movement, which has its merits, but any pitching coach is going to talk about things in short form. So you end up with a little bit of issue there in terms of like, you know, this is a problem I had initially was like, I, I got really upset at Savant, which makes no sense because they do awesome stuff over there. But I was like, <laughs> I was talking to all these pitcher, pitching coaches about guys and like, they're saying these numbers, you know, like the way it's phrased in, in, in most pitch design sessions is like, you'll say a pitch is it's vertical movement and it's horizontal movement. So like you have a slider that, or let's say fastball, fastball has, 19 inches of induced vertical break carry you know and you'll say that fastball is a 19 and six so you're saying that's 19 vertical and six horizontal six arm side in long form everything drops so all those numbers are negative so it's a completely different way to look at things but that is the way like uh, getting into the savant nuance like they have mm -hmm. pitch plots in there i believe I, I i'd have to maybe pull it up to navigate to it to remember how to navigate it to it's a little intuitive for me but like say you just go back to like any old game in like the middle yeah. of september pull it up you go to um top left it says pitch chart if you go to like pitch movement scatter yes and you're make sure you're on the illustrator tab you could start to see different pitch types if that makes any sense those yes. are phrased in long form movement but on an individual game basis you can start to see how they're classifying pitches based on the coloring and you'll start to see that sometimes you'll see like pitches that are different like you'll see two different areas of where that same pitch is this is clay holmes like you just pulled any clay holmes start from yeah. last year and you'll see that it says slider but there's two different kinds of sliders you gotcha. know so that's one way i'd say to look at it on a game by game basis the other way i look at it is more through like this tool called true media which is a, a, you have to pay for it it's like a team-based one but um we get it as an organization I, I get it individually i just got a trial run on it. i don't actually think i'm gonna get it for this year but they have like their own plots and that's what teams are looking at internally but 
that savant look is probably the best way to get it i actually don't know a way to pull full season pitch plots publicly i, I think there's probably something in savant but it's not that intuitive um, right yeah. but that's how i do it it's going to the game feed and pull that pitch scatter plot no that makes a lot of sense um another question you brought up the um the split versus the handedness and that's that's pretty fascinating because i did watch your video on that with zach wheeler yeah and that kind of you know I think like just getting more granular into how, how a pitcher is doing with each pitch. Um, I got, you know, on the pitcherless site, they do a great job of breaking down versus righties versus, versus lefties. Yeah. And, and then you can kind of see that difference of, you know, like what's being more effective. Um, and I just think that's really something um, that is kind of underutilized in fantasy because we're just looking sure. at the general overall numbers, you know, it's like, Oh, his old swing is great. His zone contact is great. But when you get to like a little bit more granular um, with the handedness, it could really, it could really benefit you. Yeah, for sure. I think there's, there's a lot of ways to go on that. I think the example I'll give is that, you know, there's a, there's a phrase in some organizations that if you're a right-handed pitcher, you want to dominate righties and just limit barrels versus lefties. And I think this relates really well to a guy like like Grayson Rodriguez in the in the uh, Royals organization. Will probably it seems like Elias said at least that he'll be starting in the rotation this year. He's a really interesting pitcher. I think he's a very good pitching prospect based on the data I've seen of his minor league stuff. But he's I think a classic example. He's got like five pitches. He's got a really deep repertoire. Um, he's a great example of like dominating right-handed hitters and then throwing a cutter that gets in the zone a ton. And just limiting weak contact versus lefties. So that is a great contrast of approach for a pitcher. And I think that often when we hear like a pitch type being added, I, the example I'd give is like Jameson Tyon this year actually is going to add a sweeping slider. Um, it's a pitch that is, again, we're talking about this little sweeper. It's, it's a sweeper. It's a pitch that's going to move laterally. He's a guy that had pretty even splits, I think, throughout his career, in the last couple of years at least versus lefties and righties. This weapon, in my opinion, is not something he's going to throw versus lefties a lot. I think it's a pitch that he's going to try to create more strikeouts and whiffs versus righties on. So from his perspective, right, he he, he pitched pretty well versus either hand and slasher because of the repertoire is relatively deep. And because that initial slider he had is more of a cutter, so that's going to work as a more platoon neutral pitch. Those sweeping sliders generally work on the same handedness, whereas your shorter gyroid sliders are a little bit easier versus the other handedness, which is another advantage of them to some extent. But a guy like Jameson Tyon, like add the sweeping slider, it's a pitch I think he's really only throwing to, to righties. Maybe he throws it to lefties every now and then. I don't know how effective it's going to be to lefties. But that is kind of a way I kind of look at things is just think about the splits as to how a guy approaches things. I, I also really wish broadcasts pushed more towards splitting up pitch usage based on handedness. Mm. Often when you watch a broadcast, you'll just see he uses percents. Like, excuse me, he uses X percent versus this in totality. Like, hey, he's throwing 45% fastballs this year. A great example is Shane Bieber, who – if I, I have this example in my head from a bit ago, I don't know if I remember correctly, but he's a guy that like, I think only throws a curveball versus left-handed hitters. So it'll say he's like a 18% curveball guy. And if you looked at, at that split on handedness, he literally almost never throws the curveball to one handedness or something wow. along those lines. I, there's something in his mix. If you split it up where he's, and it's the same thing with changeups. Like think of it from the changeup perspective, take any, any pitcher who has a good breaking ball and a changeup. like Otani is a good example. I think, Otani throws his splitter, I believe, more to lefties than he does righties, right? But if you're looking at the aggregate percentage of splitters he throws, that's going to be a constant number. So thinking of those things and thinking of that approach helps you, from my perspective at least, understand why a player maybe is not as great versus a given handedness. It's because, A, he's got a really good pitch, but he's only throwing that pitch versus a certain handedness. So Otani right. would be, that slider is a filthy pitch. He dominates righties, creates a ton of whiffers as righties. 
And the reason he's good on each handedness is because that splitter is also a great pitch and he throws that for the lefties. You take the splitter away from Shohei Otani, he's a little bit different from a pitcher to lefties, right? I think he's a guy that they try to stack more lefties against, might have trouble against them. And this goes for like, there's a lot of pitchers in baseball, probably, right, who are slider dominant, you know, slider cutter fat four seam, who have trouble versus left handed pitchers because they can't turn over any kind of breaking uh, off speed pitch, like a splitter or a changeup, which is why, again, you enter my, my prior point about splitters potentially being more of a popular tool. It's because of that reason. I think that it's a way to get guys who throw really good breaking balls and have good breaking ball shapes, a pitch that can move away from a left-handed hitter and allow them to kind of create less of a dynamic split advantage for uh, a, a hitting coach or a hitting coordinator trying to actually match up a given pitcher. That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah, and Bieber throws uh, 70, he threw 75 curveballs to righties and 440 to lefties. There you uh, go. It's a great example. Yeah, so, like, you look absolutely. at aggregate percent there, it's like 15%, but it's like 30 versus one hand and it's in five versus the other. It's like, that's yeah. a, it's <laughs> that's really, a really substantial. To me. It's material. Like, that matters. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, you had a great tweet on, um, and a great video. Uh, the tweet was about Tommy Canley's changeup, and the video was about Patrick Sandoval's changeup. But mm. you were talking about the velocity difference versus movement different. And I think we're all, um, I was always focused on the velocity differences, but your, your, your video explained that it's not just um, the differential in speed. Yeah, I think that we run into the speed thing because that's really, it's presently available on broadcast. Like you see that speed differential all the time. So it's, it's low hanging fruit for the broadcasters to say that. But based on a lot of data, based on historic change of data, you really have to look at it on, it's, it's one of the only pitches that you really have to look at the, the base fastball the guy has. And then you have to separate the changeup from those two, that pitch. So you look at the difference in velocity between the pitches and the difference in vertical break between the pitches. How much more is the changeup dropping than the average forcing fastball? And from there, you could kind of bucket changeups out. You could see like some changeups have really good vertical separation that drop, but not a lot of speed differentiation. This creates a lot of ground balls. This would be a guy like Zach Granke. Granke only has, I think, a couple miles per hour differential between his fastball and his changeup, but he kills so much spin on his changeup that you have a lot of that vertical break separation, and it causes a lot of hitters to top the ball into the ground. The velo separation is where you get whiffs. This is a guy like Dylan Cease. He throws his changeup like 78 or something like that, and his fastball is like 95. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of an outlier, but it's a good example of like, creating whiffs as long as you can get that pitch in the zone for the most part which cease you know maybe doesn't do too too well but again like creating that velocity separation is going to allow for more whiffs just a speed difference you call it like a front to back approach from the pitching perspective when you can do both is where you end up with some of the best changeups in baseball this is a guy like tyler anderson who goes from the pirates to the uh um to the uh excuse me the dodgers and now to the angels um He's a guy who had, I think, I believe, if I remember correctly, both. He had really good velocity separation and break separation between the pitches, created a really good changeup that allowed for ground balls and for whips. Luis Castillo, I think, is another one that does the same thing, similar. Um, so that's kind of how you have to look at changeups. There's a couple other pitches like this where you kind of want to you bucket them off. And again, it's, this is all pro a part of building a repertoire from the pitch design standpoint of like, what fits in the guy's repertoire best, right? Like, do we want a pitch that creates whiffs? Is he, is he a contact pitcher? Do we want some whiffs? Or is it more ground ball based? Are we trying to create weak contact? There's also weird changeups like that video on Patrick Sandoval. Sandoval doesn't create either of those things. Like he doesn't really have a good changeup. But I think there's a group of changeups that are four seam oriented. This might get a little specific and nuanced for people, but it, it, the orientation between the changeup, what I'm saying with the four seam orientation is that it's essentially thrown the exact same way as a four seam fastball. It's just with weaker fingers. So what happens, I think, and this is kind of anecdotal, kind of non anecdotal is that you create a visual difference between the pitches or, or a visual similarity between the pitches, but a velocity difference. This is actually what Tyrell Anderson did when he went to the Dodgers from the Pirates was he changed the orientation on his changeup, which I think is completely overlooked 
from most people. Like, why was that change up better? People just thought it was location. He changed the orientation. He went to a forcing grip and he created a bit of that front to back where that velocity separation is really hard for hitters to understand. If you think about it, if a car is driving straight at you, it's harder to tell the velocity of that car than if the car, velocity of the car, how fast the car is going, than if the car is driving across your, your, your line of sight, right? So yeah. that, for the most part, is why that front-to-back velocity approach works in terms of whiffs. Because it's hard for a hitter with a ball rotating the exact same way as a forcing fastball, but it's a changeup going 10 miles per hour slower. It's hard for the hitter to understand that. Patrick Sandoval had one of the best changes in baseball each of the last two seasons. That pitch does not grade out well. If you grade that pitch out, removing a lot of the actual metrics as to what occur on the pitch, so like weak contact rate, et cetera, just the raw characteristics of how that pitch interacts with his fastball, it's not a good pitch. It's below average or right around average, let's say, slightly below. That pitch works because of the orientation of the visual on the ball, I think, personally. And talking to some people in the injured organization, I believe that's one of the reasons why that pitch works really, really well. Could also be an arm speed thing. There is some merit to the idea of like a hitter, a pitcher selling a pitch and not slowing his arm down for the most part. Mm-hmm. That's a big, I think, a factor in all this. But that's kind of how I look at changeups. I think that's something like seam orientation data, which Tom Tango from MLB has kind of teased a little bit. That's something that I don't know if it'll ever become public, but it's measured by Hawkeye now which is the, the system in, in stadiums and such, in major league stadiums at least. So I think that teams are getting a better understanding of like what changeups might work in certain instances and such. And that is, I think, a, a key part of it is like maybe we understand some of these pitch types that work really well and we don't really know why they work well because they don't grade on the stuff side of things because of seam orientation data eventually. And we start to find some information there. As to whether that's ever public, I don't know. But I, I'm confident that there's types of changeups that are forcing oriented. Ian Anderson comes to mind. Um, a couple other John Means is another one who throws a four seam changeup um, that worked really well because of the visual component, and that's something that we just kind of don't talk about because also right. because we don't really have good cameras, like we don't have good pat- batter point of view cameras. So a lot of the tunneling you see from from game cameras, it's cool. I did it. It's kind of one of the reasons I got a lot of followers on Twitter, but it doesn't really matter. Like it, you know, <laughs> it, it's hard for me to say given the fact that that's how I built up a lot of my following was creating these overlays. And I also love Pitching Ninja. Rob's a great guy. Him and I DM every now and then and just super smart dude. And I think he's great for the game. But like the overlays are, I don't want to say the BS, but like no one in baseball is like using those as a way to analyze tunneling or whatever you want to think about tunneling. You know, like it's just not the batter perspective. It's not what the batter's seeing, you know? So that's a huge problem, I think, just from the media understanding of like what tunneling is versus what the actual concept of tunneling is to a pitcher in an organization. That's such a good point. I would love to see some more batter view. Um, you know, ah, man, that would be great. But yeah, it'd be sweet. It, yeah, it's a segue into the organizational um stuff. You you mentioned you know how some organizations might have some data different than others. You know, obviously, I think we know which clubs are doing it well. But do you have any like maybe some other teams like maybe that have you seen recently that have been getting better at it? And before. You answer that. You brought up Tyler Anderson, and I just yeah. it popped up in my brain to ask you about pitchers taking it with them. You know, like a pitcher mm-hmm. leaving the Dodgers. Like, how how does how do I guess what's the expectation they keep what they you know learned, and also that the new club won't try to change any of it. This right? is this feels like an Andrew Heaney question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I I don't think I have much of a perspective on what happens when they leave an org. I yeah. will say I think that there is. And certain organizations, an expectation that you get better when you go to an organization. And the organizations here would probably be the Dodgers, the Astros, um, the Rays. And I, I'll leave it at those three for now. I'm sure there's other teams that might come in there. But I think there is truly something to that buy-in 
for pitchers going to an organization where they've seen a huge track record of guys getting better, allowing them to just simply buy into what they're being told. Um, that is like, it's like the, uh, uh, the space jam water bottle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like from that movie, if anyone's seen that movie, like you, you, you use the water bottle and you get better. And it's like, it's, it, you know, obviously it's not, there's nothing in the water bottle that's making you better. It's just that you're buying into the idea. There's also a lot of like fun anecdotal studies that are very rudimentary, but you hear about them all the time. Where like you go to a high school team or college team and you go, Hey, this bat's hot. You know what I mean? And you give everyone in the over that bat and everyone hits above their, you know, everyone has a hot day. And then that mental buying is huge. So I think, and this gets, we're going to get into a little bit. I think my like guys in fantasy that are, I think are a little higher, a little low. And I'm, I'll spoil some of them right now. I think there's two pitchers that are clearly being drafted too low. And it's purely from an organizational perspective. It's, it's Noah Syndergaard and Dustin May from the Dodgers. Like, I don't really understand how the market hasn't corrected there and just assume that the Dodgers are going to fix these guys. I think the Dodgers are doing something special there in terms of their personnel. Um, this is based off communication with the organization, some people I know, but also just a pure track record thing. Like they just have a good idea of what's going on. And I, it's shocking to me that those two guys aren't being valued more. Like I, I maybe that maybe Syndergaard is the one that it doesn't do it, but like, he's a guy that I just like, yeah, he's going to be better. He's just going to be better when he's there. I don't think the Mets or the angels really had an idea what they were doing with him. Um, I, I would not be shocked if by the time we hit like middle of March, he's being drafted 50, 60 spots above ADP because he's pitching really well. The velocity's back up, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I think that that mm-hmm. like organizational trends like that are, are important. Like thinking about those things. I, I, that's an anecdotal thing that I'll bring in to my fantasy drafts. Again, I don't know how it would play in a large field tournament. Maybe it's kind of getting too granular into things, but in a 12 team league, I, play, I love playing 12 team leagues and 15s on NFBC. Like I play three or four of those a year. Like, yeah, I'm totally bringing that information in. I'm going after certain pitchers that I know are changing ores into a better ore. Like, again, it just gives me more confidence in dropping that pitcher at his price. It's really how I look at things, right? I'm trying to stay away from guys that I think maybe I'm not 100% confident in and going towards the guys that I think have a better chance of hitting their 60th percentile outcome than the 50th. And I put Dustin May there. I put Noah Syndergaard there. I put a lot of guys there that I think flip organizations like that. Or as we talked about earlier, guys that go to bat fitting, guys that go to driveline in the offseason. Like, that's that matters to me. It, re- it really does matter to me. It's... It's interesting because I think with May, I think people are just kind of unsure about the innings pitched output. But Fair. but with Thor, that's a that's a great point. Like, what do you think that would make him better? It's that, just velocity. It's, it's it, just, he's, he's yeah. a pitcher that if you look at the old metrics on what he was doing, yeah. um, he was dominant because of his velocity. He wasn't creating shapes that were incredible. He didn't really do anything great as a pitcher. He just pounded the zone and threw incredibly hard right yep. so like if he just gets back up to 90 with his slider and like adds two ticks what the dodgers have done i think the sneaky case here is alex vesia um he goes from the marlins to the dodgers and immediately adds velocity in the offseason like that was clearly a guy they targeted as seeing something in that arm that they knew i think they could improve on the, either the mechanic side or maybe it was just pure strength side like they clearly saw something there from the scouting perspective and i think they're an organization that's so well intertwined between scouting and player development that that scouting department can go this guy you know our player development can fix this so let's go target him and get him they got him in trade immediately velocity goes up and he's a better pitcher like that's those mm. subtleties like that organization knows what they're doing um and uh, you know maybe i overreact to it a little bit too much in certain instances which is totally my, could be my fault um but yeah it's just velocity like if, if he comes out and he's throwing harder he's just a better pitcher the reason he was good in the past was because of velocity it's, it's shocking to me that in the past two organizations that wasn't a focus you know like, right. I don't understand how he wasn't the guy that was just back up to what he was throwing. And maybe it's an injury thing, too, but like I don't necessarily think that, like, I, I think that an organization, an organization like Dodgers can develop velocity so well that whatever the past two organizations were doing just weren't correct. I think that Thor's just a guy who's going to jump in velocity. Um, 
that's my bet I'm making and I'm willing to kind of make that and we'll see if it actually transpires. No, that's, that's a good, that's, those are the things that, those are the differences that you have to take. Like you said, like that's, that's what differentiates you in leagues. If you know, yeah. I know like that can, if he goes back to 175 strikeouts or something like that, it's huge, right? To, yeah. Huge, huge difference. And I think with Thor too, he's, he's just, such, he, he's such a good athlete too. So exactly. whatever they could marry that with all the Dodgers are bringing, you know, in, um, like the data, I'm sure that he could kind of merge that well. Um. Yeah. So, so we hear a lot about a pitcher doesn't have a third pitch. You just got mm-hmm. two pitches. Um. How? How is it overblown or like how? How much do you factor that in? It's a good question. I think I don't know if I have a great take here, but I I think the thing I'll look at is and just say is like the guys who can survive with two pitches in baseball are like kind of like aliens. You know what I mean? Like they're really <laughs> good. Yeah. Like, like Hunter Green, Spencer Strider, you know, like, I think that we, I, I think that third pitch and the importance of a third pitch and multiple pitches is very much a thing. Um, and most repertoires, they don't have to necessarily be great either. I think it's the thing that maybe we get hung up on. A good example is, I think is going back to my point on Grayson Rodriguez, where like those, some of his peripheral pitches don't grade out well, but they create a lot of weak contact and they work. You know, so even if they're average to sub-average pitches and he's using them effectively, he can get them in the zone. And again, use that approach of like just K righties and, and try to limit barrels versus lefties. Like he's a guy that's going to need multiple pitches. There, there's just so few pitchers in baseball that can work as a starting pitcher with two pitches um, that I think most pitchers you're looking at have multiple pitches. Like it's just the reality of how repertoires developed, you know, like guys with fastball sliders, Fastball sweeper for the most part. A lot of those guys are adding cutters. This happened to a guy like Evan Phillips, who went from the Orioles to the Dodgers and worked out of their pen. Like he's a fastball slider guy. He was fine. Then he added a cutter and like he's a better pitcher. Like you're seeing now with pen arms now too, more so. Like I think that the guys just work with multiple pitches. So I don't, I I think it's very important for the majority of pitchers. A guy like Strider, a guy like Hunter Green, there's probably other examples too. Maybe necessarily don't need it enough because, excuse me, don't need it at all because those two pitches are good enough. But that's kind of a rarity. You know what I mean? Like those yeah. fastballs are both exceptional and the sliders are really, really hard. I think those are probably the two characteristics that line up the most with not needing a third pitch, but even a guy like Strider, I think ripped off a couple changeups. And like, I know green's always a guy that's working on his changeup. So if you can get that pitch to like even below average, but working better versus one hand and this than the other, and just creating some weak contact, there's value in that. Right. Um, and that's also how you see leaps year to year for pitchers like this, where, I don't know if Strider adds some kind of split or something different just to create some arm side fade. Like I, I could totally see that becoming a pitch that really vaults him forward. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I guess in some, I, I think third pitch, the importance of a third pitch or multiple pitches is, is probably rightfully stated just because, you know, it's important, but I honestly think maybe it's a little overstated for guys like Strider and green where those two pitchers are so good. I just don't think it matters for them. They're good enough, but the, there's, those guys are so rare to me that uh, I don't, there's a couple angles I have here clearly in terms of like the exceptional guys who are like alien type, just what is he doing? That's incredible. Then they don't need a third pitch, but the majority of guys just do. Yeah. I know. Cause like Strider, I think we heard that during the course of last season, he's going to have to show a third pitch to keep getting through, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh innings. And I'm watching the games and I'm like, doesn't look like he needs it. <laughs> I know. I think that's when I push back against like, I think Strider's good enough not to need it. And, and like, does he need to get, third time fourth time through for the most part like i i don't know like I, we're seeing such a push in baseball towards going away from that like yeah. i think that it does come into play in the playoffs 
like you'll see some of the the bitter the bigger like Scherzer's Verlander types like those guys could go deep in games because of how they work and because of the depth of the repertoire and the command most importantly I think um a guy like Strider I don't know if Strider needs to turn over the lineup three times really like let him roll to the fifth or sixth if you like the matchup versus some of those top of the order guys like let him go through that third time one or two hitters and then play it more based off you know individual hitters versus Strider but you see this with the Rays all the time. Like, I don't think they really care about turning that lineup over a third time. Like, they're just going to roll your guy for five innings and then be done with it. That's really it. Yep, absolutely. Great point. So we're going to have Hawkeye in the minor league now throughout mm-hmm. all the parks. And you mentioned some of the pitchers that um, that are really popular in the NFBC draft yeah. right now. Grayson Rodriguez, Andrew Painter, and Yuri Perez. Um and, and Painter is just, I mean, he's moving, he's moving up once, once, you know, in that, and that's just like that mining news, you know, he's up to 311 ADP and Grayson's at like 195 right now, you're at 550, but how, how will we be able to use that data properly, I guess, and then try to incorporate to how that might stand in the MLB. And I know you said you had yeah. some data on these guys, so let's, let's hear it, baby. Let's, rip it. Yeah, this let's hear best- it. This might be the best value out of the podcast for me is the fact that I, could, I see minor league data. I have a couple of sources and organizations that send me minor league data. So I can run them through stuff models and kind of come up with a pretty good template of which guys are going to be good. As far as like actually utilizing the information on the public side, I think I'd, I wouldn't really do too much with it. I'd kind of just wait for someone like Eno Saris to put out a stuff model. Or now that this will be scrapable, there's going to be people who will put out AAA stuff models. And that's huge. And, and especially command models to location models. Like that idea of optimizing stuff in command, I think are the two most important things for any, any excuse me, given pitcher. Um, so maybe I don't have as much clarity into like, you know, the command of some of these guys, but I do get zone rates in the minor league. So I could kind of back into it that way, but I'll just rip through these three guys. Like this is what they throw. So we'll start with Andrew Painter. He's a, he's a pretty interesting one. Cause I talked earlier about guys with this good vertical fastball, not really throwing sweepers a ton not, and Painter does to the point where I'm actually, I, I think I've gone, I, I've come full circle on him. I was into him initially. Cause I had a report from a, a guy in an who said he's like one of his favorite pitchers in the minors. And then I talked to another organization guy who said that he didn't like sweepers on high vertical fastball pitchers, just how those two pitches interacted over the course of an AB. And the other thing with Painter is he doesn't really create a crazy amount of swing and miss on some of his pitches from like a pure swing and miss standpoint, which might run counter to what his K rate sits at. But he's in the zone so much of the time that he gets ahead of hitters and can just kind of dominate them, especially as he sits at double A. Like, those hitters are just not good enough. But I, I'm curious to see how Andrew Painter f- fares versus better hitters. I think he's a guy that I don't want to fade as a prospect, but I'd have him behind Grayson Rodriguez and Yuri Perez. So he throws uh, – Painter throws fastball slider curveball changeup. His fastball is averaging 96. It's got 19 inches of vertical. It's a really good pitch. That slider is, again, a sweeper at 83. It's a good pitch. The curveball is good. Probably needs to be thrown a little bit harder. He also has a changeup that he uses kind of sparingly. The pitch is never in the zone. It's kind of more of a surprise pitch, I think. So I view him as kind of a three-pitch guy right now, fastball slider curveball. Um, I don't know if the curveball is really a major league pitch as opposed to a strike stealer or a ground ball weapon. And I think the slider is kind of a weird pitch. So I've come for a circle on him. I was initially really in, and now I think I'm actually a little bit off him relative to the market just because I don't know how that slider is going to work. Now, does this mean he's a bad major league pitcher his entire career? No, because – I think there's a clearly an adjustment that can occur with that slider. He go to more of a cutter. You got to combo those pitches up to make the slider more effective. We'll kind of see. Like that's I think an adjustment that he's going to have to make. If that adjustment happens in AAA and I could see that in the data, I'll probably be back in. But for now, if you're telling me to copy paste his Double A pitch metrics into the major leagues, I think he might struggle a little more than people realize. So mm-hmm. that's my take on Painter. My take on Yuri is that 
I think he's kind of an exceptional pitcher. He's got nothing that really pops on the on the stuff side of things. So if you take velocity, horizontal movement, vertical movement, put it into a stuff model based on major league pitches of this type, what does it generally create? How much better than average is this pitch? He doesn't really have anything that's crazy great. He's got a really good fastball. All his other pitches are kind of fine. They're not crazy, but he's really funky because he gets really good, a reasonable extension down the mound. But the other key thing here is that his release height is really high because he's super tall. But it's a weird one because he's really sidearm. He's a sidearm pitcher. But because he's so tall, he creates really weird angles with his pitches. I like the comp here of an Alec Manoa. Alec Manoa is a little bit of a taller pitcher, but he throws full sidearm. Kind of basically really low three-quarter slot, which creates weird angles on his pitches, I think, personally. So a guy like Yuri is full sidearm, but he's really tall, such that you're seeing a sidearm from a slot, seeing a sidearm from a height above the mound that you normally don't see. And you can see this clearly in the data because his swing and miss is exceptional compared to Painter's. He's got four pitches. He's fastball changeup, cutter slider. And every single one of these pitches is generating above average swing and miss. And it's crazy to me. Like, it, it's clearly something where it's not shape-based and it's more kind of this nuanced look deception thing. And he maybe he's not in zone as much as a guy like Painter from the data I'm seeing, but the fastball is 96, very similar to Painter, really good shape. The changeup is a classic Marlins changeup. It's just going to work. I don't know what they do there internally, but it's just they have a great ability to develop these pitches. The cutter is the pitch that I think is a little more of a differentiator for him. I don't love the slider. It's kind of more that bullet gyro slider from a, from a stuff perspective. But, again, the swing and the miss here is really good on the pitch. And I think the differential for him is this cutter that he kind of added late last year. And it was like 88 to 90. It's just a really good pitch. It works really well in the repertoire. It gives him, like, kind of a weird mix of fastball cutter slider that all the move a lot that he can get in the zone that he generates swing and miss on. He's also only 19 years old at double A. Like, I think that he's clearly the guy that will pop in the next couple of years if he maintains some of this stuff. His limb control for his height's insane. So I really like Yuri Perez. Grayson Arias has been one of my favorite minor league guys for a while. Um, he's a guy who kind of ticked down a little bit on the stuff side of things. In the last year, I don't know if that's a product of his shoulder injury, but he's a five-pitch guy, true five-pitch guy. His fastball changeup, cutter, slider, curveball for him. The fastball isn't as good as, as Painters or Yuri's, but again, it generates enough swing and miss, and he gets it in the zone a lot, which is really good. His changeup is actually the pitch I think here that's the best, um, which is odd because I think he's always been talked about as like a, a two-breaking ball guy with the cutter-slider curve. Um, but his changeup is really good. Like we were talking earlier about getting both velocity separation and the vertical separation. He does both of them and creates nasty swing and miss on the pitch. He's, it's his best swing and miss pitch. So for that reason, I think he'll actually be really well-fitted for uh, Camden Yards in terms of being able to limit kind of any kind of barreled contact versus lefties with the short porch and right. And then being able to kind of dominate and just spin slider cutter everything away from righties. And anytime he, he's a little more of a fly ball pitcher. So anytime he gets anything in the air for a righty, the probability I think going out in Camden now is so low that I think his, his mix works really well in my opinion for home for pitching at home. Um, the cutter is a really good pitch. That's a pitch he throws in the zone the, in the, zone the most. So I actually really like him as an approach guy versus lefties. who's going to kind of kill lefties generates a ton of chase. He's kind of more of your deep repertoire guy where everything works in unison really well and he sequences things well relative to the handedness he's he's facing. Whereas I think Yuri is a guy that just could sit in the zone and spin whatever he's spinning and like no one's going to touch him because they don't see this release from that height with these shapes often at all. So I, if I had to put one ahead of the other, probably just because of proximity, I'll go Grayson Rodriguez one, Yuri two, Painter three. I, the one I'm concerned about a little bit is Painter. And maybe this is a little more recency bias towards – 
some of the conversations I've had about how that high rise fastball works with this kind of slider. But we just don't really have too much of a test case of these two pitches interacting well at the major league level. So I'm really curious to see how he looks in spring, how he looks at AAA, um, and kind of go from there. But Grayson Rodriguez, I think, will pop immediately and be a really good pitcher. I'd be shocked if he's a guy that isn't going in like the, you know, top 100s over the next couple of years. Like he's clearly like an SP2-ish to me. I think he's got SP1 upside too. Um, and Yuri's a guy that I think has kind of that exceptional upside potential. Um, uh, so that's kind of my, my recap on those three pitchers. I feel like nice. I have pretty good data there. It's that's definitely more great. of a data approach though. I'd be curious more on the scouting takes. I've watched a little bit of them, but I know there's people out there who watch more of these guys. I'm looking more at the data that I know is relatively proprietary because it's not public. So again, I think there's, there's always value in getting different perspectives. My, my perspective is very much the data perspective. Gotcha. Yeah. I saw a painter a couple of times last year out here in Jersey and he, he, you like him? I did. I did like him. He just, it's like, um, just looked like easy. Yeah. He's super downhill him. too, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Top. Yep. And the one, the first game I, I usually, um, at the Jersey show blue claws, they have like a fire pit section and that's what my wife likes. Or when we, you know, when she come at the game, it's like, are we getting the fire pitch? Yeah, sure. Like, you know, <laughs> we'll sit out there cause she'll yeah, just yeah. sit in front of the fire and enjoy the game a whole night. And, um, yeah. Um, but you know, the, the second game I sat more, not behind the plate cause it was pretty crowded right there. You yeah. know, I think, I think people were definitely lining up to see him. So, but it was like more to the third base side. And like you mentioned, he, that vertical like ride on the fastball, it, it looks like it, you know, like it, yeah. you know, like you can see it in the eyes from the side angle, you know. Yeah. Um, and he just looked like he was really good with the with the pitch clock thing. I don't oh, know if it makes any sense. He was just like sure. he was getting a ball and was ready to throw. And I think that the batter was so not ready to he, he was just getting the ball and looking at the sign and he was ready and i think like he was just pounding pitches yeah. one after or another like that mark burley style but uh you know he just seemed like he was really ready to throw every time he got the ball um so i'll be interested to see how he does i know people are getting excited over him and they get they're kind of um merging you know the dave tombrowski you know he's gonna be aggressive he did it with justin verlander i just think that the adp is like really really wild for a guy that maybe we can expect 120 innings for and who knows when they come you know (laughs) like are they just gonna have him throw four inning stints or are they you know are they just gonna shelf him for a certain amount of time which i don't think makes sense so I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work with him. Grayson, I could see the ADP. I could see the excitement for him. Um, and that's pretty much a spot where there's not like great pitchers. I think if like, you kind of miss on that last Rasmussen, Brady Singer type guys, you know, who can just get you stable innings. He's kind of the wild card you take before it enters. Like, you know, yeah. I think, I think a lot of people think it's nuts that he goes in front of Jack Flaherty, but I don't, I don't think I'd it's say, really I think that I'd take much. <laughs> yeah, I know. Jack I've Flair seen enough. Over a couple of years. Like, I've I'm seen enough. Of yeah. I, I mean, if Grayson Arias wasn't hurt last year, his ADP, I think, would be inside like 150, 140. Like, 100%. Especially this early saying he's going to break camp. Like, right. maybe there's a limitation to how many innings he's going to throw. Say he only throws 120, 140. But you're getting those innings up front in a season, right? So, like, if I could get Grayson Arias as is at 180 or wherever he's going, have him for the first – couple months of the year and then know that i can like cut him at the end of the year if they shut him down like i then can backfill with another pitcher you know i think there's a lot of value in having the guy right out of the gate this is why like the drafting injured players is always a little bit difficult drafting a painter is a little more difficult to me especially if his adp rises and he pitches well in spring 
I just I just don't know if he's gonna break camp or pitch. Like I don't want to put him on my bench unless it's draft and hold for like I'm not gonna bench him for two months. Like that right. roster spot's really valuable to me. Grace Rodriguez is a guy that I just want right out of the gate. You know he's gonna be there on day one and I'm gonna have him for the first half of the year. And like I don't think they're gonna slow roll him initially. Maybe they kind of pulled the Tyler Wells approach and don't let him turn over the lineup a ton, but I still think there's value. Tyler Wells was had a couple of spot starts last year that were really good spots. And like maybe that's more of their approach with G Rod, which is fine. Um, but I, I like G-Rod. I, I, at the ADP, I'm not entirely sure if I'll end up with him enough. Um, but I, I definitely think you're going to get some shares of him for sure. Right. And I think, you know, you brought up a good thing that I think kind of gets overlooked in fantasy baseball. It's like we're we're knocking down players because they might not get that bulk. But, you know, there isn't a lot of bulk going around. Yeah, so like a Clayton Hershaw or Max Scherzer, like fine. Like if you think that they're only – gonna throw a buck 30 but the buck 30 is gonna be elite and yeah. you can you still have a great one. right yeah i mean yeah I mean, he's the guy's... projected for 130 and he's like the third overall pitcher taken right <laughs> like he's sp3 like i think that's kind of crazy i don't think i'm gonna end up with strider anywhere really i love him as a pitcher but i just i don't know i tend to fade some of those earlier starting pitchers um i definitely want a guy like burns i think over strider i just think there's a little more variance with strider well, yeah, you're, he's, he's your SP3 and you're drafting for 130 innings. Like, that seems crazy to me. That's nuts. I don't That's know. Maybe nuts, maybe yeah. I'm wrong on this. I remember being wrong on, like, Jose Ramirez a while back for a while until he eventually just proved me wrong so many times. <laughs> and I was like, we're well, always so, right, like, you know? we're always wrong. It's a humbling know, hobby, the fantasy it is, game, it right? Is. It really is. Um, So let's talk a little bit about pitch models that you mentioned and also the, the Savant game feed first. Let's yeah. hit on that. Just tell me, like, what should people be looking at? What is misused or overused or shouldn't just don't look at it? Anything you can, you know, yeah, give I us think with that. Yeah, it's tough. I, I actually feel like maybe I think I've evolved on this. Like I, I usually have a second screen up when I watch games to help me understand like what the guy's throwing and what the shapes are looking like and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I also think I get a little too in the weeds sometimes. Like I think that there's a lot of value in just watching the game and then checking afterwards. And seeing shapes, seeing average shapes, seeing kind of approach on certain pitches, how certain pitches looks relative to average, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to follow in-game, too, because you can see velocity uptick, downtick over the course of a start, et cetera. But, yeah, I think generally, like, I've actually, again, come full circle on this. I went, I used to be a person that would, only, like, just watch the game feed religiously and be like, oh, this pitch had this much drop and, like, mm-hmm. velocity here was the horizontal break was here. But I, I don't know how much, I think the more I've gotten into it, the, the more I'm trying to try to watch this year is more, on like a pitch to pitch level in terms of pitch sequencing, like how guys mixing pitches in a given AB, how guy looks or what he's using in certain counts. Like what is his plan of attack? When he, uh, another thing too, is I, I think a really important thing to think about is pitching off misses. So like we definitely overstate how many got, how many, excuse me, how much guys miss their target. I think that we think pitchers are much more accurate than they actually are. Um, the average miss in baseball is somewhere like the diameter of it, somewhere around like a foot. The plate's 17 inches. Like, most of the time, guys are not putting the ball where they want to put the ball, especially if they're throwing harder. So, like, I like looking at guys and seeing how they're pitching off when they miss. Like You, you said you the see, average, sorry, but the average miss, you said? The average is... miss. Like, the diameter of the average miss is about 12 inches in baseball. Wow. So, six inches, anywhere between, like, six and 10 inches in a certain direction. So, generally, guys miss in the direction of their pitch movement. So, like, on a slider, you're generally going to see those pulled away from a righty. So, the pitch right. is moving away. It will be pulled away. Fastball is, again, the same thing. So there's those misses that come in the opposite direction are often interesting. Otani misses a bit arm side with the slider, which is always curious to me, where he's missing, like, kind of up into the zone. Those are kind of, like, you'd say your bad misses. But, again, Otani's slider is so good that, like, those bad misses for him are not as bad as a guy who's throwing, say, that gyro slider, where the, the risk-reward on that pitch is much lower. So um, – or much higher, excuse me. Um, 
So yeah, I, I like that pitch sequencing angle. I think more so this year is kind of I, I think going to be my mantra in terms of watching games is thinking about the approach on a given hitter. At bat to at bat against a certain pitch, a hitter is an interesting one to to, to me. Instead of watching just like I think one thing you, you I get caught up with is like trying to watch every single matchup and getting overwhelmed when you see like nine hitters, especially with how much quicker games are going to be this year. Like just pick a hitter or two and watch those abs. Watch him turn the guy over three times and what is he doing each of those times? How is he approaching them? You know, I just did a video on this with Shoyo Tani where, like, he just rips yeah. sliders all the time. There's really not a lot of tunneling that goes into his game. So I watched, like, a lot of his ABs versus guys like Bregman and Jordan Alvarez. And, like, the approach there is sometimes really simple. But, like, you could also see him pitching at-bats at-bat. Like, he goes the, – the, the AB I mentioned in, in my video is, like, is a, he faces him four times in the game. The first three ABs, he gets him – he creates three outs because he grabs him to a double play. And then he, he singles in his final at-bat. But, like – he threw him like 80% sliders all in the same spot. He was missing all over the place. Bregman had nothing. He just couldn't do anything to it. And then the fourth AB, it's like a little more, okay, he just hit my last slider. I probably can't throw a slider. Here's fastball, fastball, sinker, sinker, slider, slider, ground ball again. So it's like, it's a different, I love that like batter, batter pitcher interaction over the course of a game. So I, I don't know, I'd say pick, you know, you could use that stuff after the game. I, I unless you know it really well and had a value on an individual level, like I, I'd kind of stay away from it. Honestly, I, I'd I'd just watch a game, have the second screen up, maybe look at velocity trends, something simple like that is cool. Um, and watch individual pitcher versus hitter, like watch the best hitters versus the best pitchers and how they approach each other. I think that's more fascinating to me, um, it, and, and kind of totally how I come right. around on than uh, I, than just staring at the game feed the whole time. So I'm so guilty of that. Me two years ago, never uh, would have thought I'd been saying this, but yeah, yeah no, I definitely no, changed. you're right. Right. And I talked no. to my good friend, Ryan Bonancio, and, and, and we had this conversation too, just saying like, I need to watch more baseball. I need to pay yeah. attention to more, to more of it because like you said, I'm so in tune to that game feed and to Grom's pitching and, and, you know, as a Met fan, it's like, is he losing velo? You know? And it's yeah, like, exactly. and, 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 and I'm sitting there, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like I'm constantly <laughs> like, I'm I'm just like focusing on these inches like of, yeah. of pitches like left or right and he's like oh is he okay and and then it's just like you said I just have to tone it back because you know what happens too it's like then you go into these into these like dives into other things and you're on other websites and all of a sudden I look up and it's the fifth inning and I'm like what did I miss you I know, know? I know. It's, totally true. <laughs> it's just like watch more baseball yeah. Rob like just 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 do that you know yeah yeah that's it focus on I'd say focus on usage velocity. You know, and and look at abs. That's that's kind of how I'd approach things. And then, hey, afterwards, you're doing a retrospective, kind of looking at a pitcher over the last couple starts. That's when I dig into a lot of the horizontal break, vertical break. How are the shapes yeah. looking? Are they changing? Are they different? Is the velocity down up in a larger sample and stuff like that? So they need to put that in the game feed. Like I want to see the usage yeah. difference. You know, and I think Nick Pollock yeah. said that they're going to have that on pitcher list. Oh, sweet! I think I'll is, check that out. Yeah, that'll be great. Which is outstanding because I do want to see that because that's 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 like. One of the things that takes me away is like, oh, um, a percentage. Like, okay, he threw a slide of fourteen percent, but is that more or less than what he's normally doing? You know, yeah, and yeah, like I said, totally. versus lefties and righties. I want all that stuff. Give totally. us, give us to all. And so, how about the pitching models? Like, how can we use it to um, help us in fantasy? Like, what should we be focusing on when we're looking at like Eno Saris's pitch model yeah. or Cameron Groves? You know, yeah, Eno's is great. I think Eno's is the best because it brings in command. So again, like yes. my. My way of looking at pitching, and I mentioned this in the video I did recently, um, is stuff in command. Like, I think those are your two biggest factors in an individual pitcher. I think that you could place most starters on a spectrum from stuff to command, whether you're relying more on command or more on stuff. I think you'd be surprised how many guys rely more on stuff than command or end up as, like, neutral locations. You know, brings it up as locations more so, which is, I think, a, generally a proxy for command for the most part, you know. So I look at – I love that spectrum. I think looking at those two columns he has in his sheet is huge. 
and he also drills it down on the pitch level, which is really important to me. That's that's how I look at models for the most part. And I don't think you really need to get too granular into understanding the inputs of them. I think it's important too if you're really interested in it. But from a utility perspective of understanding why is it, why a guy's good, that's important. That's the key thing. And I think if you were to drill down a little more, we've started to kind of maybe understand the fastball shape and fastball command year over years, maybe a little more stable than some of the other things. So guys who are a little more reliant on off-speed and breaking balls, I think maybe possess a little bit more variance. That's maybe anecdotal, but I've also heard it from some smart people. So I, there's got to be some data to back it up somewhere. But um, but yeah, lot, models are great. I wish there was more of them that are public. Um, just to see some diversity of model to model. Um, you know, you, you notice, I, I've gotten asked by some people in organizations to like, hey, what does driveline say about this pitch? And just looking at their stuff model and stuff or like, I've got asked what Eno's is because I, I have access to it because I subscribe to Athletic. Um, so, like, that stuff people care about. They want to know the differentials and things. You know, they want to know why one org likes this pitch and not this pitch. And, like, the thing you'll realize is that I think a lot of organizations have very similar pitch models, actually. They're all basing on themselves off very similar things. There's really, I don't think, much more innovation going on on the pitching side, specifically on the stuff and command side of things. I think a lot of it that you're starting to see, maybe more of the nuances, like, how is it coached? Like, how do we have these pitches interact with each other? Which maybe gets into a broader concept of tunneling, but also just, I think it's a product again of just stuff and command. I think everything in pitching for the most part can be related back to stuff and command. And then maybe there's a, there's a peripheral piece of like deception and stuff like that, that you definitely have to bring in, but you could also put that deception thing maybe into the stuff side to some extent. Um, it's hard to model that because we don't have a lot of public biomechanic data. And I think a lot of the time it probably comes down to biomechanics in terms of how guys are moving on the mound. Also, again, back to my visual point, like the visual side, I think has a lot to do with it. Um, whether there's just be a body speed thing and how you're selling a pitch or the actual spin of the pitch, that, that seam orientation, how the ball moves relative to the other balls, whether you're able to kind of not, you know, create, uh, you know, differentials in how your pitches. Like you can see a lot of guys talk about how they see a red dot on sliders and stuff like that. Like those things I think are important to hide, but we don't really, again, have a lot of information on that because we don't have much better point of view cameras and we don't have seam orientation data. So we're, we're pretty much in the dark to that, even though hitters will tell you all the time it matters. This again goes back to the idea of like new school validating old school, right? Like you yeah. could say that that pitch has a red dot, but like we don't really on the public side, I think, understand what that is. You know, we, we think we do, but I think if we had orientation data publicly, we'd maybe be able to understand like, ah, okay, you know, this red dot's created when the seam orientation ends up like this towards the plate, which probably tips the hitter off to what's occurring, you know? So stuff like that, I think is important. It's just, we haven't gotten to the point of validating it. So again, I, I stuff in command. I think you could, you could really understand 80% of a pitcher through stuff in command. Um, and maybe that's just encapsulated in results most of the time, right? Maybe that's just strike on walk. Strike on minus walk is one of the most predictive, I think, things. Absolutely, in terms yeah. of pitcher performance. Maybe it's just as simple as looking at that. Maybe I'm getting too granular with stuff in command. But I, I feel like I enjoy the stuff in command side because it allows me to understand things a little bit deeper, understand some of the tweaks a little bit deeper. But mm -hmm. from a fantasy perspective, I'm not entirely sure if you gain a lot of info beyond just looking at a K minus walk. Um, I think you would maybe get a little info in terms of year over year stuff, understanding what might be a little bit more stable, you know, especially looking at the fastball thing. Maybe the guy just had a, a secondary pitch that overperformed and his fastball is not good. You know, is that guy more 10, is that guy tend to underperform the following year? Whereas right. I think a lot of the guys that we're seeing survive deep into their thirties with good ha have at the end of the day, really good fastball shapes. Um, that makes so sense. that's something I'd want to drill into and maybe put a little bit more stock in again, just getting confident that I want to take that guy at the 50 percentile projection at the market ADP on him as opposed to taking him three rounds above ADP. Like, I think that rarely happens. We're getting too smart on the projection side. The market's getting, I think, too sharp um, in fantasy baseball to, like, take a guy three rounds above ADP. So uh, that's right. kind of my perspective on models. No, I think I think that you're right. I think that they, they're, they're very useful. I just would highlight, like, 
what you mentioned, like you could focus on the K minus walk. You could look at Sierra. You could look at things that are very predictive. If you have yeah. run the the numbers on the pitch models and how it works first ADP, then you can use it. But if you're, I think, a lot of people get tied up into using it too much, just like you just, and not looking at enough of the basic metrics. And I think that's a, like a, a pitfall. Like I've spoken to a lot of people about like they, you know, and, and like, um, or just anyone who DMs me like, Hey, I'm looking to keep five guys in my league, but um, sure. I'm just going off of uh, pitching plus and stuff. Plus I'm like, well, you have to look at other things too. You can't just, just, yeah. just look at that. It's very useful. It's, it, it's highly complex and it's going to tell us a lot about a pitcher, but you have to, um, I think, like you said, like it can validate things. You know, you see a good K minus walk, and you're like, okay, it's a, it's got a good, it's got a good number, so it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, totally, um, totally. All right, so you, you you hit us with the um guys who are going too low BP four in fantasy. You also have one more player that you thought was going a little too low, right? In um George Springer. Yeah, I like Springer a lot. I think at his ADP, he's going in like the. You had him in the eighties. He's like between, let's say, between seventy and eighty um, mm-hmm. in terms of ADP. He's a guy that's projected, I think, for over twenty dollars of value, depending on what what platform you're looking at. He's a five category guy. I kind of see him as like a guy that's like a light version of some of the early round picks that we really value, like Kyle Tucker. Um, I understand he's had some injury history, and we're still trying to figure that out. But I think that that's a little bit too baked into the price for the most part. Even if he misses games, he's kind of a little like Byron Buxton to me, where if he's in there. Um, I think especially with some of the rules um, around stolen bases, he's a guy that's going to get back to 10 plus stolen bases pretty easily. So like if he's 25 and 10 reasonable average, like I think he's your perfect, like, like just plug and play outfielder where he's helping you. He, he's pretty well distributed in every, the, all the five categories that matter in standard five by five, where like, I'm not taking a hit in anything. You know, if I'm building a pretty balanced team, I think again, team construction is really important. That's why I use that rise bowl tool, the war room. Cause it helps me understand. Like if my team's pretty balanced by the time I get to like the fifth round and I'm looking around like a Springer type, like I, I think I like that as an approach just to boost every single stat. I think it just contributes to everything. Uh, again, like I'm just more confident at that market price, right? I'm, I'm happy to take him at that market price. Would I jump him two rounds? Probably not. You know, maybe I jump him one round depending on how my team looks for sure. But yeah, him and then, and then the two Dodger pitchers again, like I, I'm pretty confident both these guys are going to outperform ADP. Um, I get the injury history on both of them with Syndergaard at going like in the three or fours. Like that's crazy to me. Like I, we have a pretty good track record of the Dodgers correcting pitchers pretty consistently. And we're not, we're not overvaluing Thor's to me. It's just wild. Like I, he's a guy I might actually jump. Like I think I'd take him a round or two above ADP. Um, and Justin May is a guy, again, I'm just confident taking at that price. Like I'm confident in what he did two years ago when he was one of the best pitchers in baseball. They just gave him a four seamer out of nowhere. And he was four seamer sink with a crazy curveball. He had like four or five pitches. Like if he outperforms, I, I don't think it's insane to think he outperforms from a, on a printing basis. Let's say a, a guy like Julio Urias. Like I, I'm maybe that's a hot take, but I think Urias will get more innings, and I think he's contract year too. So you have a little bit of that jump um, if you want to believe that contract year matters for guys. But on a printing basis, I wouldn't be shocked if on a printing basis, I wouldn't be shocked if Dustin May uh, outperforms Urias, which might be a hot take. No, I like it. I I I mean, this is. Hot takes are gonna be hot, but at the same time, yeah, like we mentioned, it's gonna differentiate you if 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 you're in a league and you see this market that it's underpriced. It's all about that's what we're doing. Like we're looking at ADP and we're saying either through the auction calculator or our evaluations, like this is mispriced yeah. and this is where I'm gonna leverage it and make money at. And I I totally agree with George Springer. I I I think when the big money 
Babley come around, I think he's going to sure. shoot up a little bit. I, I think so. Yeah. Because I think the, I mean, online championship, which is the 12 teams, um, you know, they, it, I think they might be a little different right now. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't checked that ADP actually. I should do that just to see if there's a little bit of a difference in the fab with him. Um, let's see, Springer. Uh, yeah, seventy nine as high as as high as sixty two, but I think I think yeah. it goes up because I think like you said on a per game basis we can't you know foresee the injuries, but on the base pass last year it was fourteen for sixteen, and you know yeah. he, he was really aggressive and good at it. So um, I like that call right there for sure. Um, who who are you guys thinking it's going too high? Yeah, these are these were this was tougher again because I think that. Again, like I'm just looking at like what guys I'm more confident to take at ADP. So I think these two guys are more guys that I just won't take at ADP. I don't necessarily think they're bad. I think Jose Abreu is just getting old. I understand he had like a great year last year, and he is like his O swing went down, string striker went down. He had like a high BABIP. He rode like a 300 average. I I just think that's a little aggressive for me. Like I I think I'd maybe rather possess some of the upside in a guy like Vinny Pasquantino or something like that, who I think swung a little bit after him. Or some of the other first basemen around there. First base is a deep position. Like CJ Crones, who is, I think, going after him. Uh, that's I love playing the, the Rockies Park there, too. You, you're always starting that guy when you get a, a bulk of home starts for him. You can mix and match, too. Um, I think I just wouldn't take Abreu at that ADP. I don't necessarily think he's going to not be good. Like his 50th percentile outcome looked fine in some of the projections I saw. Just probably not taking him there if I had to uh, from the teams that I presume I'll build. Dylan Cease is another one. This gets into the whole approach. Like for a while, I, I definitely took the Razzwell philosophy of just fading early starting pitching, and I know that they're generally a te- an organization Razzwell that that is anti early pitching. Um, but in contrast to a lot of the smarter uh, NFBC players I've heard and listened to, really liking some of that early pitching approach, get like the value of getting like a Burns off the top is really strong. But I think my approach this year will likely be to hammer the window of starting pitchers after a cease and get like two SP twos or like it kind of really round out the top of my offense with like a Tucker uh, and, you know, something around there, maybe go like try to get like Mookie trout, like something around there. If I'm, if I'm at the 12 and at the turn there, go around that window and get like a Mookie into trout. You're pretty balanced and everything. Maybe you're a little light and stolen bases. That's okay. Build out your offense and then go hammer some SP twos, SP threes who I like. Um, as opposed to going in that weird round with Cease, where he's like third-ish, fourth round. Like, I don't necessarily know if I'd go after him. Um, the other approach would be to take like a Burns alongside uh, an offensive guy and then build out and be a little more ability to kind of adjust off who guys are falling. I just, I, Dylan Cease is good. Like, I think he's a great pitcher. Again, I, I, I like his break. I think I kind of called that. I think a lot of pe- other people called that as well. Good pitcher. Everything's good. The stuff loves him. Maybe not the best command. But I just think he pitched so well last year that he's – He's kind of just a guy that I think will regress back slightly and not like he's a guy that I think is going to be really hard for him to return the value that he's at. And especially with how tight I feel like some of the SP2s and SP3s are, like I'd probably just aim towards taking guys lower than him. Like, like you, Darvish, I kind of actually like a lot this year coming off a really strong year last year. He's Love going it. after the mid 80s, sure. mid 80s, yeah, like, like that's I just a no brainer. Especially at price, like I'd yeah. rather just have you Darsh at eighty than Cease at 46, 60, or wherever he's going. Forty, Absolutely. you know, like yeah, it makes sense. That's that the the difference between those two pitchers to me is very very small. Um, so that's kind of the main reason why I'm off Cease. But I guess I guess that's a pretty good high level recap right there, and kind of my initial impressions here. No, um, I like that because yeah. I think I'm I'm the same way with like the Abreu and Pascantino thing, and and that's not only because he's Italian. <laughs> 
I think there's like a lot of the same qualities in there. And I know Kaufman Stadium stinks and all this, but sure. um, there's just something in his approach and his game that I just love. And I would rather take him and the upside to, you know, that he's going to be better. Um, and with Cease, yeah, I know it breaks my heart because I, I love Cease. And like you I last too, year yeah. too, like I hammered him last year and he yep. brought home a lot of bacon for sure, you sure, know. Same, um, same. But there is something to be said about that group of pitching that you mentioned. There's a whole bunch of, you know, Castillo and Javier. This is like 15 picks after him and, and yeah, Gausman and yeah, yeah. And, um, just a whole Musgrove, Framber. It's just a lot of guys that you could take later on. And I think like, I think what you mentioned too was like taking like a Burns or Cole up top and then like kind of waiting. I think that's a good approach too because I think what a lot of people miss though, you know, when they make that, you know, um, why would I take Garrett Cole when I can take such and such later? It's, a, it's like, because like 40 strikeouts is a big difference, you know, like when you're sure. playing Roto and like every strikeout counts, like there's a big difference between him and and uh, Brandon Hudruff, you know, like, yeah, he's a good pitcher and I get it. You can wait until the third round to get your ace, but like 40, 50 strikeouts is huge, you know, when, yeah. when you're like playing for those categories. So it's just something to keep in mind. I think a lot of people fall into that. They lose that sense of how much each stat carries and matters. Cause yeah. at the end of the season, when you lost by, you know, seven strikeouts and you're like, oh shit, you know, that's a big, yeah. That's team really matters a lot. Like the bouncing statistical categories, especially on the offensive side and the pitching side. Again, that's why I use that war room tool. Like I just, yep. it gives me a really good idea. Any any other kind of proxy to understand where your team is heavy on after four rounds is important. You know, you have to team build. You know, I, I think that's really, really huge in, in building a fantasy team. Absolutely. So let's let's close this out with a whole, yeah. all things Cubbies, all things yeah, Chicago we'll Cubs. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So how does this rotation play out? Um, I just right. want you to like just kind of go through like because they kept adding guys and um I was big on the Hayden um yeah, with Nesky train early, you know, and I was like, Oh, this is great. And his ADP was really high and it's still kind of decently high, but I was like, Oh, now is he not on a pitch? What's gonna happen? Um so just if you could just go through the rotation and the sure. bullpen and the and the, and the in between guys, just just give us a, a whole top top bottom view on the Cubs. Yeah. Here. I'll go starters first, and then I'll give you. Yeah. I'll let you react a little because I'm curious on your thoughts here. So, okay, cool. Jameson Tyon is the guy they added. Obviously, we talked about the sweeper there. I again, like getting back to my idea of like when you have a new pitch, or you have something new occurring with a player. I think that again just makes me more confident taking that player to give an ADP. And I have to pull up ADP here unless you got it up, Rob. Um, I just wanted to reference that in relation to some of these Cubs guys, so we understand. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll bring that up, and you can. Cool, um, cool. So yeah, so with Tyone, like again, wherever he's going ADP, my assumption here is that the market is baking in certain factors, but not baking in a factor like adding a sweeping slider. Which, in my opinion, you know, is a pitch he's going to use to righties. I think it'll jump the K's a little bit. So like maybe he's more of like a low. Maybe he's like an eight five K per nine guy, eight K per nine guy. When the past kind of been, yeah, two fifty right now in the last two weeks. Yeah. Perfect. I, I'm confident taking him at 250, given the fact that I'm. I think the market is not including the fact that he has a new pitch, right? That I think right. it's going to be a pretty good pitch, a good weapon, a good swing and miss weapon versus right-handed hitters. So I like Tyon a lot. I think he's a good pitcher. He's coming into an org, obviously going to try to change up some things. Stroman is an interesting one. He's a guy that, in talking to him and following the season last year, kind of just I don't think he was right for half the year. Which again, like most of the time, I think projections is going to say that larger sample of the entire season is more predictive than an individual. Half, first half, second half, which definitely there's a merit to, but I think what that might miss in, on occasion is 
um, like the injury side of things. Like, do you think a guy actually was affected by a given injury? And Stroman, I think, was actually affected by a given injury. And the proof I have for that is just looking at, again, going back to pitch shapes here. This is maybe where we can add some of the stiff stuff in and it makes sense. Like, he's a guy that the sinker changed shape as he got back from his second, his first aisle stint or second aisle stint, whatever one by midway point, second half of the year, was pretty strong. Stinker was a better pitch. He was dropping more. He was getting too much backspin on it. The cutter changed too. So in my perspective, if even if we think that the entirety of the year for him was more predictive than an individual first half or second half, I can see underlying trends in the, in the second half there that make me a little more confident in him being good. You also have the weird incentive here of him having potential for a player opt-out at the end of the year. Hmm. I don't necessarily know if he's going to opt-out. I have no idea on that. I don't have any incentive there. But I do think that's something that he has to play for. Um, and I, again, I think there are some players that maybe react a little more mentally to having a little bit of that control. Like if he wants to opt out and get it, he has a great year, wants to opt out and get a big contract. Like I think teams seem to be, if this market carries over to the next off season, a little more accommodating towards larger years, uh, at high dollar values so to spread out that to help against the luxury tax. So like, if he wants to get a five-year deal to pitch into his late thirties somewhere, I think he might get that. Hmm. Um, even if the dollar value isn't that big, maybe teams you know, say he wants however many million, maybe he wants 80 million, 90 million. Spread that out over four years, five years, as opposed to going like another two year counter with the Cubs with another opt out. I think it might be more attractive to him. So we'll see what happens there. My prediction would be that he does opt out. I don't necessarily know if he will. Again, I don't have any inside info there or anything. Steele's an interesting one. Steele, like, he's not a guy that pops on models. I always wonder if models can project lefties that well, stuff models and stuff. He's not really, the slider's fine. He's kind of got this like cuttery fastball that's like in a tweener pitch between a four seam and a cutter. It's not really one or the other. It works really well. He had a really simple approach last year too. He just like threw to two spots in the zone regardless of handedness. He doesn't really have good command in my opinion. Kind of just hucks it and like it works. Um, I know he's a guy Eno's kind of off because of some of the underlying metrics there, but I, I don't know. I'd definitely rather have Stroman given that their ADPs are really similar. Um Steel has more of the strikeout upside. I just think there's a little more chance that he bottoms out. This gets back into the idea of like the distributions of projections. Like even if these guys' 50th percentile is pretty similar, where they're getting the stats might be a little bit different. Steel's going to K more guys. I think Stroman will have more just aggregate Ks. So maybe not as good on the perning basis, but it'll give you more innings. So like in my opinion, like I think Steel maybe has a larger range of outcomes. Like maybe he takes another step. Maybe he works on a changeup. Maybe he figures out a sinker of some kind that'll work really well versus either handedness. Whereas Stroman, I think just has a relatively high floor. Like I think you kind of just know what you're getting as like an SP six or seven, probably based on what the ADP looks like. So one of those back end bench guys, you could flip in weekend L central home versus the reds home versus the pirates row versus the pirates, all good matchups. Milwaukee lineups kind of a little funky too. Like I don't necessarily know. They have a lot of lefty pop there. I think with Winker and Telez, like Steele's a guy that's going to match up pretty well versus them. So, like, a matchup basis, you know, as your SP7, I could see there are these guys working relatively well, if you like them. I think Steele has more of the upside than Stroman, but I, I see Stroman is more stable. Hendricks I have no idea with. I think I think the time's kind of – the ship's kind of sailed on him, in my opinion, which might be a little bit negative. But I'd love to see him get back to what he's done. He's a great guy, like, really smart dude, super – done a ton for this city. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe draft and hold. He's a guy that you take on the outskirts, you know, as just like a near last pick you know, where you're just like, uh, maybe he gives me some innings post mid break, but at the same time, maybe I might just go towards a young guy who might pop up. Um, Drew Smiley is a weird one. He's a guy. I think that's just the inning totals too low to kind of make anything with him, but he's another guy where the draft and hold angle, I think is good there. Um, especially with the matchups he'll get, uh, Keegan Thompson, um, or I skipped over Wisniewski. Wisniewski is one of my favorites. He's going 332 right now, which is beyond Stroman and Steele. I like him as much as Stroman and Steele. 
Um, from a pitch perspective, like I think he's just a great pitcher. He has that rare ability to command his sweeper, which I think, again, creates a ton of margin for error in the zone. I love him as a dude. He's a great guy, super, super intelligent. Um, he's got a really good working relationship with the assistant pitching coach here, Daniel Moscos, who came over from the Yankees. So there's a bit of anecdotal, like they work really well together. He's a deep mix guy. He's an execution guy. He's, he's kind of more your, your command kind of starter, but he has that nasty sweeper, which is a soft pitch. That works really well in tandem. I really like him. I think he's got a shot to be like the best pitcher in this rotation, which might be insane to say. Um, I think he's got like a skewed positive. If we're talking about, again, our distribution of projections here, I think he's a guy that's just kind of outperform whatever's projected of him. He's a guy that I think the ADP is going to jump up with pretty quick if they announce he's in the rotation. As to whether he's actually in the rotation, I'd be pretty surprised if he doesn't beat out Adrian Sampson. And I think the market's saying that based on the ADP of 330 for Wesneski and like 700 for Sampson. Samson's made some good tweaks year over year, but I don't necessarily know. Like, I think he's more of a depth quad A starter. Wesneski yeah. to me is like a solid three or four on, in a pure rotation. So as an SP, maybe that's more of an SP5, SP6. But I think he's a guy that like clearly can outperform ADP if you're talking fantasy specifically. Like, I, it's just a matter of innings there, you know? It's kind of like that Painter idea. Like, like Andrew Painter, that's a good example, Matthew. Painter versus Wesneski. Both of these guys, like, we don't know. Like, say you're drafting right now. Between those two guys, I take Wisniewski. Um, that might be an interesting take. I don't know. Like, uh, if we get closer into March and we see how they're pitching out of spring and, like, get a better idea of, like, how both these guys are faring and whether they're going to make the rotation, maybe that changes. Maybe Painter pushes above Wisniewski. And, again, like, I, I think we just have a really good, strong track record already of Wisniewski. And those stuff stats stabilize really quickly for him. Um, Assad and Killian are kind of afterthoughts for me. I, I don't really see them as being pieces this year unless they run into a ton of injuries. But – I'd be shocked if Wisniewski doesn't get like 130 innings or so um, out of all out of the rotation. I just don't think he's a pen arm. Like I, they have guys like Keegan Thompson and others who I think are pen arms and multi-inning pen arms that are going to work out of that spot. I don't really understand how Wisniewski would fare in that. Like he's got a starter's mix and he's clearly a starter in my opinion. Um, but as to what the Cubs do versus my opinion, I'm not entirely sure. You know, that's, I think, uh, again, be, even though I work for their RSN here, I don't really have any insight in, you know, they're, they're pretty closed off team in terms of what they disclose in, in decisions. But I'm curious on your thoughts, Rob, like, is there anyone that you like at ADP here, like that you take? It seems like a lot of these guys are kind of not really valued too highly from ADP perspective. Yeah. I, and I think you made a great, I think what I took out of that too, is I think what a lot of people should realize too, is again, we're talking about the team building. You have guys like Tyon and Stroman. And I think if you're not, relying on them to be any part of your savior of your staff. Like you said, six, seven, SP six and seven is a great range. Um, especially in these DCs where it kind of, you know, after pick four fifty, there really isn't any starters that you can yeah. really rely on. So you want to take these depth pieces, have these guys like streaming off streaming off your bench in a fab league too. These are the type of guys that I would definitely go for. Stroman, he just continues to like kind of amaze me about, you know, how he could just change as a pitcher and the amount of work that he puts in. Um, it's it pretty, that's, that's known. Um, for sure. Steel, steel is very, very interesting because I think a lot of, you know, what you could do too is like, you know, a lot of people look at the second half stats and they'll see, oh, K minus walked and he was in next to a lot of like of the top tier pitchers in the league. But um again, like listening to you talk about his pitch stuff and seeing the pitch metrics, it doesn't look special. Um, mm -hmm. but also 
I don't know. You know, if we've seen weirder things happen, you know, um, I just think that his price is a little too rich right now. Justin Steele, 275. There was a point where he was like in the 350s, 340s range. And mm. I think I would be all over that. Wisniewski was um, in that 275 range. And I think as they signed guys, he kind of bumped back up, up, up and up. But I really loved watching him last year. I just love his mound presence, too. There was something yeah. about him. He's and, goofy. Um, He's goofy. Yeah. He's he just has I don't know. I I like watching that. I like watching everything about his presence on the mound. I was listening to um the compound podcast with mm -hmm. Ian Happ and he was talking too about how he has so much energy on the bench like they had to tell him to like save so it for the mound, you know, because he's so he just he doesn't stop moving around. He's asking yep. questions, he's doing all these things. So, um but skills-wise, yeah, I think that slider is really good. Um Pitcher List has um came out with their own pitch metrics like kind of like this stuff so, yeah, I'm taking a look at it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um I like what they have is something like quality pitch and a bad pitch and they have a like quality minus bad pitch and the slider just like was really really super good in terms of yeah. Um it graded out really well. Um and the sinker graded out well too. The four seamer looks like they weren't too keen on that even though they're PLA which is like their ERA side of the pitch sure. um, was still pretty good. Um, but I I think, yeah, I like him too. I, I was in on him early in the season and then he got pushed up to a spot where I didn't take him. And now that he's like fell down, I'm still missing him <laughs> in my drafts. Yeah, yeah. But but I do think that in the fab league, like um, right now there's a lot of early like online championship leagues and I would take him um, toward the end of the draft as you know, just because uh, sure. those guys yeah. are replaceable too. Like, you know, if, if it doesn't have a job, it's in triple A, you just drop them and you pick up another starter. Um, yeah. and then like Keegan Thompson, I had him on some DC teams last year and he was so, so useful, <laughs> you know, like, was, like he said, yeah. but you know, like he, he serves a role on your team in the draft champions for sure, because you'll just be decimated with injuries and whether he's throwing in the pen or starting, he was giving me five or six good innings somehow, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think he'll probably, I guess he'll probably keep that same role this year. I think there's a lot of, yeah, he's uh, a tweener again. Like if tweener. he runs into injuries, I think he goes back to the rotation, but for the most part, it seems like he's going to be a multi-inning reliever of sorts. I would bet like backing up a Drew Smiley. If Smiley can't get through five, like right, they right. bring him in four and two thirds he pitches two and a third and they go eight, nine with someone else, you know, like I, I think that's kind of the approach I imagine is going to occur. And that's something us. to take advantage to like in fab leagues too. Like if you know, that's a constant thing, if you know, like he's going to come in with after smiley every game and you can yeah, maybe exactly. get that vulture win, you know, like if smiley just going three or whatever, four, yep. he's not going to qualify. You can, if Thompson just comes in, gives you three innings. And I think he had a lot of games like that last year. And I'll tie it into another guy. And then we could talk about bullpen, but is Alzale going to be that same kind of pitcher? Or there's a lot of speculation no. that they like him as the, as like a closer type role. My um, assumption is that he's more, he's more leverage relief. I think he said he wants to pitch out of the pen. I think he's a guy that could give multi inning. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily know their approach with that or their tendency to do that with him. I don't remember if they did that a lot with him last year. Yeah. The, the, the closer, the, Arm barn, so to speak, on this market, as you have mm -hmm. in the notes here, which I laughed at. Um, it's tough. It's a tough one. I, I, my lean right now is that they just go matchup heavy, and this is a disaster from a fantasy perspective, not a disaster yeah. from an actual results perspective. But again, from a fantasy perspective, I think this is going to be a this is a brutal team to own a closer on. Like, I, I don't think I'll, <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna like have any of these guys. Um, 
in any team. Like, I think there's just other closers I'd probably rather have to take a shot on just because I think you have a lot of grouped together guys. Like, Brandon Hughes is interesting. And Slider, like, generated a crazy whiff percentage last year. It was, like, top 20 pitch in baseball, um, which is shocking because there's really the, – the stats on it are fine. It's not that great of a pitch. Like, again, I think this might be more of a thing where it's a visual and angle thing for him. He releases so far towards the first base side of the rubber that, like, he, I think it's, like, 90th percentile release side. So, like, we talk about release height, but there's also a side, like, how far do you want or one way or the other. And because he's a low slot guy, like, he's kind of like a little, like, AJ Puck, where it's just a weird pitch coming from that angle, where even though it's not necessarily going to work versus righties, it works really well. Um, So, I think he's a guy that Ross is going to love against lefty-heavy teams in the ninth or eighth. So, he's going to get saves, I think. Boxberger is a weird signing to me. I don't necessarily think he's good. But, like, he's got really good track record. He consistently overperforms his metrics. There's underlying metrics. Is this the year he blows up? I have no idea. But I, my angle would be that he gets some saves. I think Alzali gets some saves. Fulmer just got drafted. I'm kind of curious to see how the market corrects on him. It seems like right now the market, from what I was pulling up, that the market thinks Hughes is the closer. But it doesn't. I don't think there's enough data to show Fulmer. Like, is Fulmer being drafted above Hughes? I would bet he does get drafted above Hughes by March maybe because the righty might work a little bit better in save situations whereas Hughes might be more of like the 7-8-9 based on who's up but then the funny thing is that you have two other guys here Julian Merriweather and Jeremiah Estrada who are like the stuff bets right Mm -hmm. like you bet on closers via stuff and like both these guys have the best stuff in the bullpen so like Merriweather can't stay healthy maybe he's more of a fade I love Jeremiah Estrada from a pitch shape standpoint like he's great He's also, again, a good dude, really good. Like, I, I think he's got a little, maybe not of the moxie for a closer, but he's got the stuff for a closer. And I think the organization knows that, but I don't know if they're going to give him a shot out of the gate in AAA. Like, he's a guy that I think is going to have to earn a little trust to get into that role for Ross, which I it does seem like Ross has a little bit of that. He, and, and there isn't too much of, like, an elevation of young guys, especially the pen. So, like, it's a weird pen, man. Like, I think you're going to end yeah. up with, like, three or four guys here who have five, six saves. Yep. And then maybe at the end of the year, you start to see some differentiation. But I'm not particularly confident that this is going to be like a, a lucrative bullpen for fantasy specifically. I yep. think it could be a good bullpen on matchups basis. But I just – I don't know. I think this is going to be one of those ones where you just you just leave it. Just leave it alone in your fantasy leagues and go after a new team. Like that yeah, maybe cause... has one guy that's clear stuff. Like a Trevor May I like this year. I think a lot of people do just because that pen isn't good and he's a good guy, starter. Uh, excuse me, good – good stuff pitcher so like he's a clear one that's like okay i just rather have trevor may than anybody by a large margin than anybody in the cubs pen right now because i know that may's gonna close i think and i don't know who's gonna close here so like even if i only get 23 saves from may because the a's are terrible i'd rather take that in some surefire saves than like brandon hughes getting two saves in a week and then not getting a save for the rest of the month you know like that's brutal in fantasy to own so I'm kind of off this pen from a fantasy perspective, but they do have some interesting names. So yeah, it's just hard to time, you know, like it's you really said, like, time, yeah, like it's, you know, the NFPC had a couple, um, they introduced a gladiator format, which is basically like that, Roto. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you get your stats of the guys you drafted and in, in, in a format like that. I was like less hesitant to take like a, a raise closer or, you know, yeah. because it is what it is and you don't have to time it. And maybe the same thing with here. I think, you know, cause like Brandon Hughes is, is in the last, you know, three weeks is 
Still 323 ADP. That's still high for me. It's just yeah. so high to pay for a guy who might get like eight saves or four. Who knows? And I think there's also like the there's also the um forecasting going on of like, okay, like I'm gonna draft Brett Boxberger or or Wick or or, or and like they're gonna trade them, you know at the trade deadline, but like, what if yeah. they're good and they're in the hunt? Are they going to trade these guys? Like if they're kind of in the race, it's a you know, weird spot. Yeah, I, it's yeah. a weird spot. And then, like you said, with Estrada, you know, if, if you do look like, you know, stuff's plus is he's grouped, you know, on the fastball alone on the four team, he's next the to cold, the Grom and you on Duran. So like, if you look at that, it's a and it, yeah. it's hundred percent great pitch. Um, I have, I have a bunch of friends who definitely like what they see. And 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 it's, I mean it's going at a price at five twenty six. It's it's definitely rising a little bit because I think more and more yeah. people are catching on to that stuff that he has. Um, but he's and then guy, you have he's a guy that I, I bet I would be my bet right now is he doesn't break camp. Maybe he does. I'd love to see him break camp. But my bet is he doesn't break camp and then he gets cut by everyone who drafted him. And then like he's a midseason pickup. We're like. Right. Boxberger struggles. You get a little bit of struggle, struggle, struggle. He gets called up, dominates, maybe gets back in the leverage role and then gets some saves. So, like, I don't know if he's a guy that I draft. Draft and hold, I like him. Um, but, again, like, I think there's a chance he doesn't break camp. Like, they've, they've added a lot of these guys. They actually have some financial flexibility to add another two. Like, if they want to go out and get a Britain, I could see that happening. So, like, if they do that, then they have, Man. like, five veteran relievers. Jeez. Like, I don't I don't think a guy like Estrada makes it, you know? Like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that's it's just a mess. Like you said, it's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah. Um, before we get out of here, just just um, I know I took up a lot of your time, but talk to me about the you know Brennan Davis or um PCA. Are we going to see any of these guys this year? Brent Brennan for sure. I think like he had this. He had like a. It's not a back surgery. He just got some blood vessels cleaned up in his back. So they're very specific in that terming it as a back surgery. But. Yeah, he's running some odd injuries. He's a guy that, like, they brought back last year, and he was clear. Like, the batted ball data from the minor league side just wasn't good. Like, he clearly wasn't strong enough. Like, he, he basically couldn't backload anything, couldn't squat, couldn't do anything off the ground in terms of pulls, like deadlift pulls or trap bar deadlifts, like, for two months, three months last year. Like, wow. that's going to kill you in the middle of the season. So I want to see early AAA what the batted ball data looks like for him. If that's back to anything like it was, I could see him kind of finding some kind of role, especially if they run in some kind of injury. But it's also a tough spot because I don't really know he's going to play. Like, this outfield's kind of loaded. Hap, it's it's clearly Hap, Bellinger, Suzuki. Um, and Suzuki, Bellinger maybe doesn't play versus lefties, but then I think they put Morrell out there in center field. So, like, you have four outfielders. Like, I don't necessarily know where Brennan slots in. Um, maybe an injury pushes him into it. You also have a backstop at DH. Not a backstop, not a catcher, but like a, a, a queue of DHs between if Mervis comes up eventually – you know, you have a lot of these guys where I don't know where Brennan plays. So I, this might just be a get right year for him where they bring him up at the end of the year or with yeah. injury. But it also is really going to depend on how he looks. So I, I think we will see him this year. PCA, I don't think we'll see for the reason that they have Bellinger for the one year. To me, that signing is just a clear stopgap to PCA. I think right. PCA is a guy that starts at double A this year. If he gets, if he looks good, he, go, he jumps up to triple A, hopefully maybe two months left, a month left. That'd be kind of an aggressive assignment for him, but I think he's a good enough player to do it. And then he's a guy that hopefully breaks camp in 2024. Nice. Um, and you don't have Bellinger there if he doesn't decide to resign. So I'll go yes and Brendan Davis, no on PCA. Um, one quick question because you brought his name up. Christopher yeah. oh, Morrell. Yeah, he's he's so polarizing. Yeah. Me because there's some drafts where like he kind of falls into like, okay, I could use a second baseman here or like a middle infielder. And he's got the dual eligibility, but – and he might now add third as well, but he he had like a tail of two halves to 
I don't know. Yeah. He just had tantalizing skills, but it's also like, what if he just keeps, you know, getting getting worse at those skills? I don't know. Like, what's your feelings on him? Yeah, he had a bad in-zone contact rate problem, which is something that definitely needs to be corrected for him to be, I think, a productive hitter at the major league level. But he is super electric, right? Like, that's yeah. the reason they called him up from AA. Like, they knew all the underlying traits were loud. Like, really good arm strength, can play multiple positions, freaky fast, like, big power. So, like, I like him as a player. He's also, like, crazy energy guy in the dugout. Like, he's super fun. Um but yeah, the in zone contact's a problem for him. Even though he's got a relatively flat swing, he's not a guy that gets a lot of those fastballs up that he could kill. Like he kind of has to hone his zone a little more and also make more contact in the zone, which I think are two problems that are hard to correct at the same time. Right. But he does have the underlying trait of like having already already pretty good exit velocity, which I know is something your rear is a little bit harder to correct unless you're doing like deliberate bat speed training and stuff. So swing decisions, once you get to the major level or what you correct, have to correct your rear. And as to whether he does it, I don't really know. Um, he's young. I think he can still have the chance to do it. If I had to guess, I, I don't, I wish I had more information on how correctable in zone contact is. Like what is the average increase? Like, I, I want to see how that ages. I'd be curious about his own in zone contact aging. Like, is it to get better as you come up? Is that something that is a little stable year over year where it just kind of doesn't change? Right. Um, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure, but that's the problem. Like the problem is pretty clear as to how they correct the problem. I don't know. That's, you know, that's new hitting coach here, Dustin Kelly, came from the minor league system. He's worked with a lot of these guys in the past. Maybe he has a better, a little better of a of a vision on what to do in certain situations. But, um, yeah, it's a matter of his own contact. He's a guy that, like, look early. I don't know how quickly that stat stabilizes. I imagine it probably takes a little bit. But first month of the season, I'd be curious to see her year over year if that's improved at all. And if it has, I maybe be a little more aggressive in trying to acquire him or add him off waivers. But right. otherwise, I think he's kind of like a kind of a wait-and-see guy. Yeah, because he he started off with a pretty good rolling, He's super hot, yeah, rolling average of of zone contact, and then it, it kind of plummeted. Um, but like one one thing I've been trying to use more and more this year, and I haven't really figured out a way to totally quantify it. But Driveline had a great blog on quantifying swing swing positions. Yeah, and yeah. and and it's I think what we get lost in the whole O swing thing is zone swing also. So I've been trying to use them like hand in hand because. It's a part of plate discipline, I think, that we don't cover enough as fantasy analysts. Because, like, yeah. um, I like, you know, because if you're swinging aggressively out of a zone, but but you make it up with good swings in the zone, like good choices in the zone, and, and you get the ball hard, then that's okay. It kind of offsets it, you know? Um, and, and Morel, I look at his rolling graph chart, and, like, when he was chasing, he also was – not swinging in the zone. So it's almost yeah. like he was just overall tentative, you know, and home guys just need to be able to just rip, just like let it rip, you know? I just think like if you're losing aggressiveness in the zone, it's probably just a maybe a pitch recognition thing for him. Maybe he's just got to get better at that too. But he he's a guy who like can be such a such a league like right now in DCs, he could be such a oh man, he's such a wild card because if he's in there and he's doing his thing and he's getting a 2020 type season on us, like he's he's going way too low, <laughs> you know, way, way too, too low. low. Yeah. yeah. Especially so. like he's a guy that I think could sneak into like 15 bags too. Like there's definitely some interesting scenarios with him. Yeah, you're you're right on the zone contact thing. That's something that I think I'm still trying to understand. I think I saw a thread the other day about thinking through that where there's some issue, there's some like weird situations with it where like zone zone swing minus o swing as opposed to just o swing but like yes. o swing is still pretty predictive like there's there's some angle there the angle that i actually kind of like that i don't know whether there's any statistical significance behind 
was looking at like in Savant, you could you could filter based on heart of the zone. I think mm-hmm. that what we might get caught up with a little bit is guys who swing in the zone but swing at a lot of chase pitch, like like shadow pitches. Right. So what I started doing was run a sort between O swing or no, what did I what did I do? I did a sort on just swing that was zone swing versus total swing percentage and the ratio right. of those two. So like obviously there's a correlation between if you're swinging overall, you're probably swinging more in the zone. But I was curious about guys who had like maybe average swing rates that had really high heart of zone swing rates. Right. And the two guys that came up on that, one of them was Kyle Tucker, actually. Kyle Tucker is only slightly above average in terms of swing rate, but he's like 98th percentile zone swing rate. To me, what that signals is more of like, this guy understands like this idea of swinging where you create slug, you know? Yes. It's something you'll hear from a lot of hitting coaches. I really like that as like a, you know, relative to how often you swing, how much of your swings are in the middle of the plate where you can actually do damage. Absolutely. Kyle Tucker was on there. Jose Altuve was on there. There's a couple other guys on there too. But that's one way I looked at it. Or excuse me, Bregman was the other one. Bregman and Tucker both on the same team were like really high percentile. Bregman, I think, was the biggest outlier. Well, like his his overall swing rate's average. But if you look at his heart swing rate, how often he swings in the heart of the zone, it's like crazy high, 95th percentile. I felt that that was a good way to look at like, you know, swing decisions maybe. I don't, again, I don't know. I don't have too much of a data background as to understanding how to model it and whether that's more predictive than maybe just looking at pure zone minus O, you know, or, or any of those things. But yeah, I think like heart, heart swing rate is a good indicator of like, relative to how often you normally swing is a good indicator of how polished that guy's approaches from a swing decision standpoint. hundred um, percent. No, it totally that's where they sense. can make contact on those pitches. That's a whole nother story. That's another you know story. I mean? Yeah. Morel, where it's like, he might swing perfectly where he needs to, but like there might just be something going on there where he can't barrel the ball properly because of his swing. That's more of a biomechanic. That's something that we'll probably never have a good understanding of from the public side. Right. Now I think you make a good, a good point about maybe focusing in that zone swing a little more into something more, more granular. Like, like I said, where, where, where you get slug from. Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. Cause just, just Z minus O um, I found like, so like league average, like 36%, but like it, you mentioned Kyle Tucker for anyone over 300 plate appearance had the highest Z minus O of 53%, almost 54%. Um, And Bregman is also in the top 10 and, and George Springer is too. George Springer is fast. So Akuna is up there. JD Davis is, you know, kind of hanging out in that Chris Taylor is an interesting guy, Mm -hmm. Ben Intendi. So I'm just, I've been trying to get like this list and just look like what kind of hitters are these hitters? Like, you know, what kind of guys are these? Like, and most of them just, I mean, most of them generally have good production in terms of WRC plus. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've just been like, kind of using this a little bit in the repertoire. Like I said, I, as I further, further understand it. Um, and like you said, maybe I'll look into that uh, heart swing and just like, I think there's something there that we can capture and start to yeah. quantify in some, in some kind of way. Cause it, it's hard um, to, and then it's what, like what kind of pitch too. Right. And I think that's what pitcher mm-hmm. list is doing. They're quantifying the event, you know, sure. um, you know, which is really cool. Like they're, you know, was this pitch supposed to be smacked out of the park or not? And grading that event and 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 giving that a value. So just uh, sure, we're, st- we're, we're still getting uh, we're still far in the woods here of trying we to get are. better. Like, like so, um, but I think I think we're getting closer. I think with all this technology out, we could definitely do that for. But um, for sure. I appreciate your time, Lance, man. You've been Anytime. so awesome. This is exactly what I was uh, expecting for sure. And awesome. um, yeah, so again, tell everyone to take us out, where to find you and what you're doing. 
Yeah, yeah. So I work at Marquee Sports Network, the Cubs RSN, Twitter, Lance Bras, YouTube channel. I'm going to try to pump up, especially as we get into the season. I don't know how much I can do it in season when I do other things. Um, I think if you just search Lance Brozdowski there, it'll pop up. Maybe even Lance Braz, it'll pop up. I have some. I'll be doing some more videos there. Um, I also think I'll be doing some more other networks. So I'll, I'll jump into other. Hopefully, this isn't finalized, but some other regional sports networks you might be seeing me on, awesome, on more TV man. stuff, some other stuff. So I'm excited. Fantastic, bro. Keep keep shining, man. You're, you're doing your thing. I appreciate it, Rob. And it's good. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Pull Hitter Podcast. Rob D., the dead pull hitter, at Pull Hitter Pod, at Launch Angle Pod. Co-hosting with Jeff Zimmerman and Rob Silver on the Launch Angle as well. And it's doing the Pull Hitter Pod, so keep, in, keep checking in with the shows. Keep getting ready for your fantasy baseball seasons this year. Thank you for everyone who's listening and supporting the show and sending out great reviews and ratings. Much appreciated to you all for not being a big bag of shit. Smarten up. Peace.